Movie of the Week. Presenting the world premiere of an original motion picture produced especially for ABC. everybody this is Amanda Reyes um, you may know me as Amanda by night if you have followed me through the days when the internet was still using Angel Fire and Tripod um, I have a blog that you may also know about called Made for TV Mayhem and I'm hoping to take it to the next level tonight with uh, my premiere podcast which again will also be all about television and I'm really really excited um, and I'm even more excited that I talked uh, two people into coming along with me on this journey of television awesomeness. So let me go and introduce my co-host. I'll start with uh, Dan Budnick, who you may know as Danny Slacks. Hello, everyone. Good evening. It's nice. <laughs> it's, it's lovely. To, lovely to be here. It's great to be on the. Uh, it's great to be on the podcast. I'm excited. I am too. I'm glad you're here. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? <clears throat> Uh, well, um, I, uh, I'm a nice boy. <laughs> uh, my mother always says I, uh, I write, uh, for several years I wrote for a website called Bleeding Skull, uh, co-authored a book with the, uh, um, guy who runs the site, Joe Ziemba called Bleeding Skull, a 1980s trash horror odyssey. I'm currently working on another book about 1980s action films uh, I have a blog uh, called Some Polish American Guy Reviews Things, where I review, um, at the moment, mostly TV shows. I'm currently reviewing uh, the Ben Murphy uh, Invisible Man type show, Gemini Man. And, um, yeah, I love writing, and I love uh, TV. I love TV movies. And um, I live in Los Angeles uh, with, my, with my beautiful wife, a couple of dogs, and a cat. And... Um, I'm uh, I'm very excited to tell everyone uh, what my first TV movie I ever saw was. <laughs> Yay! Um, Yay! I have to say, uh, since we have gotten to know each other over the last year, we met about a year ago through Twitter, actually. So Twitter can be mm -hmm. your friend if you know how to use it. Yes. Um, and use it wisely. But uh, every time Dan mentions his wife, he always uses the word beautiful right before and I mean, I think he's done that every time he's mentioned her. And I think out of all the stuff you've ever done, which is really impressive, having that beautiful wife might be my favorite of your accomplishments. I just have to say. Oh, thank you. She's a, she's a, she's a, she's wonderful. She she's seems wonderful. She like a, keeper. a little under the, she, yeah, she was a little under the weather yesterday and she might be today also. She's not home from work yet, but I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping she'll be okay. Working you know. and sick. That's the worst. Yeah. But um, I can uh, verify Dan's uh, TV movie knowledge or, and just regular television. Actually, we met because we sh have a shared love of Happy Days um, yes. in particular, although I think he loves the entire series as a whole um, yes. for everything. And I do, too. But uh, we're both really big fans of the Jump the Shark uh, seasons, which he actually mm -hmm. argues about when the show actually jumped the shark. And uh, just the other day, I watched the infamous episode, which I think Dan brought up, where Fonzie tells the forest to keep quiet. Oh, yes. yes. And, and they yep. do. And yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much like the end of it for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, it's uh, yeah. There's there's an article. It's on uh, Pop Matters, which I wrote for Pop Matters, in which Amanda very kindly proofread and edited for me all about um, jumping the shark and surviving. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it's, I mean, I, I, I love the show all the way through. It changed so much. And, um, 
And but I do love those last few years without Richie with Jenny Piccolo. Oh God, I love it. But tell me, how many things did Fonzie jump? Because I also watched where he jumped over a bunch of barrels. He did. Yeah, he that was the fearless Fonzarelli for the TV show. He jumps over. Is it barrels or? I think it's barrels or trash cans or something. Yeah, some and he he wipes out into like um, the chicken stand. It's a chicken stand. Correct. And I, uh, I was like, wow, he jumped over a lot of stuff. I don't think I realized that. I think I think that was just what you did when you had a motorcycle. You kind of <laughs> drove along the ground or jumped over things. So I guess but he did it all. I I think I think, and I'll stop talking about Fonzie real quick right here. But the other night, my wife and I watched an episode where Richie and and Potsy and Ralph are trying to get in a fraternity, and um, Fonzie was very much on the periphery, but every moment he was in, he was hysterical. So there's there's something to be said for um, him him when he's big and like a Superman. And Correct. also when he's just kind of this cool guy hanging out in the men's bathroom. Oh, God. He's he's Henry Winkler, you know, is brilliant. And I'm sure we will actually get to – there's a movie he made called No Way Out with John Ritter. Oh. It's a thriller. Oh. It's a domestic thriller where Henry Winkler plays an insane, abusive boyfriend to John Ritter's ex-wife. And wow. they, they go toe-to-toe through the whole film. And it's uh, maze balls, And I don't use that word lightly. <laughs> So I'm, I have a feeling we will get, we will do all of John Ritter's films, I think, at some point, because it has to be done. Um, yeah. And also we have, I actually know this next person, mostly through our love of horror, but Nate Johnson um, loves a lot of everything, and his enthusiasm actually knows no bounds. I can't think of anything that he loves that he doesn't love, which is a, one of the reasons why I'm so glad he's here. Hi, Nate. Hi, Amanda. Um. Let's see. I, I, how can I beat that introduction? I mean, <laughs> well, tell us what, where you're from. I mean, you do a lot of stuff that people listen yes. to. I am. Um, well, I'm a co-host on the Hysteria Continues podcast, which covers horror movies and slasher movies mostly. Although sometimes some of the picks I don't quite understand, but mostly it's slasher <laughs> movies, which is my favorite subgenre of horror. Um. And I do have a love for TV movies. I watched them a lot when I was younger. Um, mostly I watched, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s TV movies. I think that's what I mostly saw when I was uh, growing up. My mom was a big fan of them. So we used to watch them a lot. Uh, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I made a movie called The Night Before Easter. And if you saw it, I apologize. Oh, no. It's fine. <laughs> But, I mean, that was a fun experience. Oh, goodness. It's on YouTube. Nobody wants to see (laughs) it. It's for free on YouTube. You can watch it for free. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really cool, though. I mean, that it's translated. You've been making movies for a long time. I mean, you have a bunch of movies on YouTube. Nate made a lot of small films when, I guess you were a teenager? Yes. And um, they're really fun. And um, it's his whole family gets involved. And he has a Trilogy of Terror, actually, uh, tribute. On one of his movies. I do. It's called Voodoo Massacre. <laughs> oh, fantastic. You have to have Massacre in the title somewhere or it doesn't count. And it's a little coconut doll with a fishing line. <laughs> I mean, that's nice. good times. Um, and I guess I have to say that I did watch Happy Days, but I was probably a bigger fan of Laverne and Shirley. <gasps> yeah, I might be oh, too, actually. Oh, they're wonderful, too. Yeah. yeah, they're really good. I'm I'm a big Laverne fan. I feel like I relate to Laverne on, like, 3,000 different levles. And um, <laughs> I, I, even though it's interesting, I think Cindy Williams, in a way, is, or I should say Shirley, uh, her character is a lot like 
I am too in some ways, but maybe it's that I would rather be Laverne. I think Shirley uh, over-romanticizes a lot of stuff, and I know I do that, um, confession. But um, Laverne just, had, like, she's kind of a in-your-face, like, very honest, uh, really smart, I think, um, character. And maybe it's that I want to be Laverne. So therefore, I put I project as much as I can on her for that milk and Pepsi. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. And, and actually, I met Cindy Williams briefly. Um, she did a panel at... Uh, Pittsburgh Steel City Con, and um, she has a ridiculous memory. So if you ask her a question about, like, an episode of Laverne and Shirley, she will say, oh, yeah, well, in the second scene, I do this pratfall, and she'll go back and tell you how they rehearsed the pratfall. Like, she remembers it like uh, like it was yesterday. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask her about this TV movie she made. I believe it's called When Dreams Come True with David Morris and Lee Horsley, who played Matt Houston. And it was directed by John Luella Moxie, who I know we'll talk about a little later tonight. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, oh, I'm going to ask her about it. So I raised my hand, and I asked her if she just had any anecdotes about making that movie, and she couldn't remember a damn thing. <laughs> Nothing. She was just like, oh, I think Lee Horsley was in it. And um, I, it was good. And that was kind of my whole answer. And I thought, wow. She, uh, everything else she remembered like it was yesterday uh, but that movie she just and you know what I don't blame her it's not one of my favorite movies but I, I love that director so I was mm -hmm. really curious to see if yeah, she had anything yeah. to say about him she actually doesn't really remember making the movie and that's actually going to lead into um, the basic structure of our film of what we're going to be talking about so I'll talk a little bit about our format so tonight's going to be a little different and I have a feeling that maybe our next episode might be a little different too because um, we're recording this the day after we found out Wes Craven died and mm. as much as he's known for his theatrical films he made some really good TV movies and it, this might be a good venue and we haven't decided yet but we're talking about it to maybe um, sit down and do a show about that uh, maybe it won't be the next show, but it's going to come up, I think, and um, we'll keep you up with that. But after those, this show and that show, um, the basic structure that we devised, at least for the first ten shows um, that we've actually sat down and plotted out, um, we're going to be doing double features. And the goal is to pick a movie that pretty much anybody would know, pretty famous movie in, in the history of made-for-TV movies, and then something maybe slightly more obscure. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this will probably know both movies because I find that the people... So I have a Facebook page for my blog, and I find that a lot of people who interact with me on that page, they know every movie I know. So um, it is possible if you're listening to this, you're like, that's not an obscure movie. But I'm, I, we're trying really hard to pick movies that we think that maybe the general public hasn't heard of. And, um, and one that they have, and we're theming them together by whatever themes we want. It might be similar directors, same actor. It might be they're both about, you know, broken homes or there's proto slashers. Um, and to kind of make it fun. And, and basically, there's, I don't know how much information we'll give because not a lot of TV movies are easy to research. Some there's just a ton of information about and some there's nothing. And um, and that goes for classics as well as obscure films. There are some movies that I've tried to research a lot and they're really well known and I can't find anything. And then sometimes I'll look up a movie and maybe little star like Barbara Eden and, and for some reason that movie got a lot of coverage and I can research it. So it really just depends. It will really just be us breaking down the film a little bit we're going to assume most people are semi-familiar with the stories and uh, and just discussing them and maybe bringing a little context to the television movie, which we're also going to do uh, tonight. And then on our menu for tonight, we're just going to talk about um, 
our top three favorite TV movies. Um, and we'll just discuss those films and then you can kind of uh, get an idea of where we're going and who we are and blah, 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 and all that. So just to, you know, I had written some stuff down and then I have some really uh, bad notes, but I think I'm going to go with my notes because I feel like if I read, it just sounds really um, stale and that's not what we want either. I think you can tell my hosts actually have a lot of personality. I personally don't like talking. I prefer listening. So it's really funny that I decided to host a podcast. Um, and we'll see how that goes. But luckily, I have two friends here that can help me out. So yes. um, just so everybody knows uh, that we're starting with 1964 as the beginning date of the movies we'll be reviewing. And then we'll just go till present. We're going to mostly be doing network movies, although I think you can't really discuss made-for-television movies without discussing the USA original and Lifetime movies and probably sci-fi movies, even though I'm less familiar with those. Um I chose 1964 because I have a book called uh, Movies Made for Television by, by Alvin Merrill. And it's actually, uh, there's different editions of it. And um, the last edition, he, apparently he died in 2010, but he did his last edition was updated in 2004. And it's a five-volume set of every TV movie that had ever come out uh, up to that point, including cable. And there are about 5,000 titles, I think, total in that book. So um, he started in 1964 because although TV movies had sort of existed in one form or another, they were usually attached to an anthology series like Playhouse 90. And he wanted to start with the standalone films. And uh, I believe it was See How They Run NBC, maybe, with John Forsythe was the very first TV movie, which really seems lost. I have not been able to find a copy of it. Um, but, so, but that will basically be our first film. And then we will build up from there. And I have a feeling we'll be doing a lot of 70s classics because um, that's where sort of the heart of the TV movie is. Although I think Nate uh, grew up on a really great era for television. Uh, TV movies really can be defined by their decade. And um, I think that as they started to change, they became different. And I think in some ways... Fans of 70s TV movies maybe weren't as interested in the later stuff, but I think that there's some really good stuff. And there's, um, for instance, we'll talk a lot about actors who um, moved out of, like, comedy, like um, Elizabeth Montgomery really used the TV movie as a way to move away from the bewitched image. And you'll see that continued through the history of TV movies. And so you'll see a lot of stuff uh, in the 90s in particular and maybe the late 80s and actually the early 80s. I'm going to use John Ritter as an example since um, I always want to use him as an example. Uh, he made um, a lot of different kinds of TV movies. And actually uh, Andy Griffith, who also used the TV movies of venue to move away from Mayberry, uh, they made a movie together that I don't know if either one of you have seen called Gramps. Have you guys no. seen that? No. Oh, it's no, off the charts. And I think that's like an early 90s, maybe late 80s TV movie. John Ritter's kind of the straight man in it, but Andy Griffith is, I can't even, all I can say is off the charts. He is just evil to the core, and he's so much fun to watch. And and you'll see when you watch that film, you'll see two actors who are really trying to break free of that sort of stereotype that they found themselves in when their series ended. And so um, you'll see the TV movie through its entire history has been used for many different things. And... Um, but the most important thing for me, I guess, is to see the uh, range of actors. You see all these familiar faces, but doing really unfamiliar things. And I think that that's really exciting. And I think that's something important to the history of film in general. Um, and, and something unique to maybe the television movie. So TV movies uh, really had... Uh, 
a hill to climb when they were first made. And still to this day, if a network, and NBC actually still makes TV movies from time to time, um, it was a kind of a battle. So they have FCC regulations, and you know there's no profanity, um, no nudity, and no violence. And so they had to really work around a lot of this, and they had to make feature films that felt like feature films, but without using a lot of things that feature films were allowed to use. They also had much smaller budgets. Um, I think the average TV movie in the 70s uh, cost about $350,000, and I think that's the pilot TV movies. I'm not really sure about the regular TV movies. I have a feeling those might have been even less expensive, because... the TV movies, um, and I guess they're a little like theatrical films, except back then. Uh, and you might hear that noise from time to time. We're working through our kinks, but uh, forgive us if you hear that. Um, so, so theatricals, so before home video, theatricals, you know, they played for a while and then they disappeared and you might catch them on TV, but they played for a couple months at a time. Now, TV movies played maybe once or twice. And then, if they were lucky, went into syndication. But even then, you had to hope that the programmer in your town um, liked that movie or wanted to play it or he could afford it or whatever. So a lot of these movies were meant to be temporary. So I wouldn't be surprised if the budgets were even cheaper than $350,000 because they were really meant to be just temporary, short-lived phenomenons that made you want to stay in because you knew you probably weren't going to see it again. Um, so they had to work against all of that and get people in. Um, and the 60s had kind of a rough start. They, there was a few dozen movies made from 64 to 69. There was a few horror movies. It hadn't really come into that yet. But then um, in 1969, um, ABC created a series called the ABC Movie of the Week. And I, if I'm correct, the term Movie of the Week actually came out of this um, series. I think before then it was probably just called the Telefilm or Motion Picture Made for Television. Um, so they really uh, created what I would consider, I guess, the factory of television filmmaking. Um, they were just pumping them out one after the other. And I, I think that, like, I want to say that, like, one season they had, like, 36 or 40 movies come out during that season. Because it started as, like, I think the Monday night movie, or I'm not even sure the Tuesday night movie, then Wednesday. And they kept adding them through the week because they were really popular. Um and what was so great about the ABC Movie of the Week is that uh, they like to capitalize on popular genres. So there was a lot of horror movies getting made. Um, a lot of ghost stories, but there were some like proto-slashers, a lot of thrillers, probably more thrillers than anything else. And a lot of them were really good. They were amazingly good considering that they were hiring people to make a movie in probably 10 to 20 days. Get it, I don't even know how long post-production was, maybe a couple weeks. And throw it out there and maybe get seen once or twice and then go on to the next project. So um, as this podcast continues, you'll notice we're going to start using a lot of, you'll hear a lot of the same filmmakers' names come up from uh, like John Llewellyn Moxie, who I mentioned earlier. Jerry Jameson is another name. Buzz Kulik, um, who directed Bad Ronald and did a crazy amount of weird variety of films. Um, you'll start to hear these names over and over again because they, they got, oh, Gordon Hessler. Okay, I just had to mention him. He's one of my favorites. But um, they were able to make these movies in very short periods of time and, and make them look good and get audiences to come in. So um, they're also very important. And they also knew how to play, you know, within the FCC rules. So another important aspect of these TV movies, and, and probably some of you listening will be able to relate to it, is that uh, for people like me who grew up in the 70s, and maybe Dan as well, this was uh, the gateway to horror. 
because it's not like my parents were going to take me at five years old to go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know. I know a lot of kids. I mean, so Nate and I are actually on a horror forum for The Body Count Continues, and we've been it's been running for like over a decade now that board and there are some people on that board who were going to horror movie in the theater at like five years old like they had an older brother or whatever and they just went and i didn't have that luxury and also i grew up in kind of a small town so i was really lucky if some of these movies even showed up uh, it was vegas which seems like a big town it was a small town in the 70s trust me on this um so uh, my first exposure to movie to to horror movies uh, were um, were the TV movies, and the, you know what? That's probably a good thing because um, the first TV movie I remember seeing. Now there's two, and I can't really figure out which one was first, so I'll mention both of them. Was either Gargoyles or Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Now, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, I did not see in its entirety for the first few years after the first time I caught the end of it. I just happened to catch it on television. And um, I was still living in California at the time. I was probably four or five. Um, and uh, for anybody who remembers that ending, it's a really downbeat, dark ending. And it really blew my mind that to see something like that play out in front of me. And then the next time I tried to watch it, which I think was not too long afterwards, the beginning had that cat that meows into the frame and then the titles come up. And that scared me. And so through the years, I watched like bits of the movie. <laughs> and I eventually saw the whole thing. And I think I was actually much older when I finally saw it in one whole piece. Um, I love it now. It's one of my favorite movies. Gargoyles, I don't remember... That's why I think Don't Be Afraid of the Dark must have been first because I don't remember being that afraid of watching Gargoyles. I was more fascinated by it. Um, I do like monster movies. I probably don't watch them as much as I should. But um, that movie in particular really captivated me as a kid. I can remember just sitting in front of the TV and just staring at it. It was like nothing else existed except what was playing out on the screen. And I loved it. I still love it. It actually played... I'm living in Austin now. And it actually played at the Alamo Draft House about three or four months ago. And a guy came in dressed up as a gargoyle and nice. didn't talk to anybody, nice. came by himself. We got a picture of him. Um, and we actually have a website we're building. And maybe I'll put a photo of him on the website. And I'll tell you, I'll give you the website address at the end. But anyway, so these movies had big impacts on a lot of people. And that's why I think they're so important. And that's why I also want to ask Dan and Nate what their first TV movie memories are. And I, I guess I'll start with Dan. What do you remember watching first? The the very first TV movie I remember watching was actually a, a miniseries, and that was was it 1984 I believe or 1985 V, the final yes. battle. Yes. And I for some reason I missed the original V, but I I got the novelization. This was during like a two or three year period where I was like buying novelizations of movies and reading them before they came out. So when I went to see Return of the Jedi with friends, I knew exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> I was so excited. Um, uh, I did not spoil anything. I was, I was a good boy. But I bought the, I bought the V um, novelization, read it, loved it. And then when the two-part or three-part um, uh, very long V the Final Battle premiered. I was there. I think I was 11. I was there every ooh, every night. It was so exciting. It was so great. And then it ended on a cliffhanger, which led into the series, which I found a little disappointing, as you named it V the Final Battle. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> good point. A bit, of, bit of a heartbreaker. And I and I I always I I sort of hop ahead to the next time. Actually, the next time I tried a mini series was Fresno which is a soap opera parody with Carol Burnett from the mid-'80s. Yes, that's a and good that one. Had, 
that had an ending. So I tried <laughs> another one. That had a proper ending, which is lovely. It it didn't lead into anything, you know, it just Correct. Ended. Although that should have been a series, let's face it. It should have been. It was really wonderful. Yes, Terry Dar was fantastic. <laughs> And um, and then I tried one more miniseries a year later, America with a K, yes, which was like fourteen and a half hours, and that had an ending that left you hanging. So um, somewhere along there, I just began to stick with regular TV movies and discovered stuff like Bad Ronald, and, sure, um, uh, Trilogy of Terror, things like that. I so. think I mentioned this uh, before, but um, and it actually came up today. At, I had lunch with my coworkers. One of uh, the employees was leaving, and so we all went out for lunch, and somebody brought up V. Of, of all things. And um, I actually took a class taught by the guy who wrote V. He also wrote Visiting Hours. Um, wow. He's written a couple of really good movies. Those are the two that come to mind right now. Um, so a lot of TV movies. He always did The Spell, um, which I think we are oh, wow. talking okay. about. Anyway, he said that V was actually originally, and I'm doing this off memory, so don't quote me, but I, my memory says that he was doing, when he wrote V, it was meant to be a World War II story. And they oh. were pitching it, and nobody wanted it. And so <laughs> I think he had a writing partner, and they were like, well, it's about aliens. And there, people were all of a sudden like, oh, this is so good. And so they just kind of rearranged some things and made it about aliens. And that's it became awesome. a classic. And um, and so I always think that's a funny story. But, yes, those are really good. And I have V, and I think I have V, The Final Battle, and I might even have the TV series. And um, I'm hoping to rewatch those soon because I – I only really remember Robert England. Oh yeah, mm. yeah. Um, now, because I remember watching one of them when it originally aired, but I was like, not at my home. I think we were visiting somebody, so I was watching on their TV, and I think it was like I was really distracted the whole time. So I don't, mm. I don't have that many memories of whatever. I don't know if it was the first one or not, so I won't go into it. But anyway. Um, yeah. And we might be talking about miniseries on here, too. That's, those are just real commitments. That's the only thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah. You have to take a... Because I would love to talk about North and South, but, I mean, that's like 50 oh, yeah. hours of <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, it's so good, though. So, Nate, what is the first TV movie you remember watching? The very first one I remember watching was in uh, 1984, The Burning Bad. That's a good one. Um, um, oh, yes. Real quick, before you guys get too far, I actually have a soundbite for that. So let me play okay. this promo. October 8th. You're going to stay right here. NBC presents Vera Fawcett in a story torn from today's headlines. Trapped in a brutal and violent marriage. Until the night she struck back. Based on a true story, The Burning Bed, Monday, October 8th. Okay, before Nate goes on with uh, his memory of this movie... What was up with that like keyboard in the background? They made that sound. I was kinda... gonna say, what's, what's yeah, what's happening with that music? And it's like <laughs> Mannix is chasing Sarah Foster around. I know, I know. Like, what is that? I crazy. don't think it really does justice to the movie. But go ahead, Nate. Nate. So, well, what's really funny to me though is that the announcer says. Um, all dramatic until the night she fights back, and I'm like, really? If you watch this movie, it's not a matter of her getting fed up as she decides to take revenge. I mean, that's really not the way it plays out. I mean, it just plays out that she just take it so much and she just lost her mind. But right. she wasn't like, it's like she didn't really even do it out of anger. She was just very blank when she was pouring right. the gasoline. But, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, the movie deals with spousal abuse, um, Farrah Fawcett, who I'd actually saw in Charlie's Angels, you know. So it right. was actually kind of odd to see her, you know, in this role playing like a battered housewife. Absolutely. That's what a lot of people thought. 
Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, but she does an excellent job in it, as does Paul Lamatt, who plays her abusive yes. husband. He's oh, yes. very convincing yeah. in this movie. He's a um, good actor, too. Oh, yes. He won an Emmy or a Golden he Globe? He won a Golden this? Globe, and I think Farrah was nominated, and I feel like they were both nominated for Emmys. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's um, it's it's a it's a good movie. It's a really good TV movie to see. Um, and I mean, it's obviously not a pleasant film to watch. Right. You know, it's um, it's very serious. It's not, you know, as uh, much fun as some of the cheesy movies I'm excited to talk about later on. Well, I'm curious though. I mean, you must have been really young when you saw it. I mean, what was your impression at that age? Do you remember? Um, when I was that young and I saw it, Paul Lamette scared me <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. I thought he was terrifying. Um, and I, the movie just has this very hopeless kind of feel to it. I mean, even though it shows in the very beginning what happens and then it basically kind of tells the rest in flashbacks. Right. But even knowing what's coming, I mean, it, it doesn't take away from like the, I guess it, it's sort of the suspense of it because you keep wanting to root for her and, and, and to get away and, and things like that. But it's just her situation just is just hopeless all the way around continually. It's like she gets door slammed in her face every, you know, time right. she turns around. So, yeah. And a lot of movies copied that and actually, well, just a little piece of trivia. So I read, and I don't know how true this is cause I got it off IMDb, but I read that Cheryl Ladd was originally offered the part and, um, huh. she declined it, but you know, Jacqueline Smith, and I wish I could remember the name of the movie now, or even who played her husband. She did a very similar movie to the burning bed to lesser, results um it's uh where she plays an abused wife who finally has too much and i feel like she kills her husband god why can't i remember who the husband is but there was a lot of those that came out afterwards and i mean they're really important films but i feel like the factory kicked in after a while and first of all i don't think you'll ever make a movie quite as good as the burning bed i mean that's a phenomenal film it was the number one most watched program when it aired and and was listed as the fourth rated highest tv movie ever um and was seen in over 30 million households, which means it was roughly seen by probably 60 to a million people on the night it premiered. These other TV movies, or Jeannie Garth did one as well, but I'm thinking of like The Angels. Like, I don't know if Kate Jackson did one, but... Um, but the, did Shelley Hacks do one? I don't, you know, a Shelley Hacks TV movie career is really interesting, and I'm sure we'll talk about her as well, because I actually really <laughs> like her TV movies. Um, uh, but I don't remember her. It's interesting. She was really, um, she did a movie... Before she did Charlie's Angels, called Death Car on the Freeway, and oh, yes. she's yeah. actually a really strong character in that. And I feel like I don't, I don't really see Shelley Hack. I can't think of a TV movie where she didn't play like a woman who wouldn't put up with that shit to start up with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I've, I have never seen that in her filmography. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I haven't seen every movie she's made, but. Well, n- not on a TV movie. No, not in a TV movie. Stepfather, yes. Oh my God, Stepfather, yes. yes. She plays kind of a. I mean, not not an abused wife by any means but sort of a maybe a little more of a mousy yes she's a pushover for Mm -hmm. sure yeah Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that's a good point i totally forgot about that till you just said it um that's really interesting you know what that would actually be an interesting article to write about these sort of uh abusive relationships that charlie's angels actresses got into in their later film career And I always, I always think of a uh, fair faucet on the first or second episode of Battle of the Network Stars. <laughs> of course, you do. Char- Charlie's Angels was at its height, and Six Million Dollar Man was at its height, and someone—I want to say it's Rona Barrett, but it, it might be <laughs> Howard Cosell. But they're the same. One of the two. Uh, um, uh, at the inter- is interviewing Farrah Fawcett 
majors at the time about uh, you know living with Lee. And you know, it's like we we get up really early, and we both go out. And we both work hard all day. We both have these successful shows, and then I get home and I I make Lee his dinner, and I clean the house. And I thought, really, Farah, do you have to really? You have you can't. It's not <laughs> time to hire someone to do that, or does Lee? Oh, gosh, that, I always find that a little strange. Just maybe, to see, really, maybe she just liked uh, cleaning. Some people get. Yeah, I mean, I, I always cook when I get home, so generally, so. So maybe maybe you're just misjudging her glamorous life. It could be. She's mm-hmm. just a girl next door. <laughs> she is with me, all that. <laughs> she was amazing. And uh, speaking of actors who used the TV movie to move away from their projected our projected image of them, um, Farrah Fawcett did it so well. I mean, she'd already. I think she did Extremities before the Burning Bed. I, I'm not positive of that, but uh, the Burning Bed really changed people's minds about what she was as an actress. And it's interesting because we all saw her as Jill Monroe, but that's because she was just so good. At yeah. being Jill Monroe, that we felt like that's how she must be, but we didn't realize that till we started to see her in other films that 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 she was really acting on Charlie's Angels. They all were. They were all wonderful. I think that that was a, you know, I've I've been watching a lot of Charlie's Angels a lot, and I've watched it my entire life a lot actually. So surprise, surprise. But um, <laughs> they actually, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, the last two replacement angels, um, even though I like them both, uh, they had some really strong actors right out of the gate. You know, and um, I think Jacqueline Smith's best best work came in Charlie's Angels. I love a lot of her TV movie work, but she was never quite as good to me. Mm-hmm. Just going to put that out there for everybody. Um, and we're actually just, to, this is a good time to bring up feedback. So we're actually going to have, oh my God, yes, I wrote down the email address. Okay. We're going to have a place for you to leave feedback if you want to um, talk about your favorite angel. And your favorite TV movie, <laughs> your angel, an angel was in. or And if you think Jacqueline Smith's best work came out of Charlie's Angels. I would love to hear <laughs> anybody talk about that. So uh, just listen up for the email at the end. Um, so let's go ahead and get started with our um, favorite uh, TV movies. And I guess I'll go ahead and start with Nate. Okay. Well, I would uh, minor in no particular order. Okay. Um but the first one I would like to discuss is I actually, just so the audience know, I kind of flipped the script on Amanda <laughs> at the last minute, and I chose a different movie. <laughs> but she actually loves this movie, so yes. I don't feel quite as guilty about it. No, but don't. It it's, is called, <laughs> it's called A Friend to Die For, which is a.k.a. Death of a Cheerleader. But that, I believe when it first aired in 94, it was called A Friend to Die For. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I here's the... Uh, uh, oh, it's not really a TV promo. Maybe it's for the video release, I think, but, or a TV spot. But there's no network mention. But here's a soundbite for it. Tori Spelling has it all. He is so hot. I think he's going to ask me to prom. Kelly Martin wants it all. What would you have to do to be popular? What happens when an innocent dream... You're so pretty and funny and confident. All I want is to be like you. Pathetic. ...turns into a deadly obsession. Go away. Go away! Based on a true story. Forgive me, Father. Death of a cheerleader. You're so pretty and funny and confident. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> and she's like, I have, I have girls, girls, you. girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean that that pretty much um, was a was a good description of the film. Uh, Tori Spelling plays a character named Stacy Lockwood, who is um, you know she's like the head, she's the queen bee of the high school, and she is a very cruel and vicious person. 
And, of course, uh, Kelly Martin plays the kind of mousy girl-next-door type who kind of has an obsession about Stacy and her life. I mean, she wants to be her friend probably more than anything in the world. Um, and, of course, you know, um, Stacy being just like an evil character, I mean, she, you know, she looks down on uh, Kelly Martin's character, uh, Andrea. So she looks down on her uh, considerably. And there's also a character that um, Amanda and I both love. Her name is Monica. <laughs> and she's like the goth girl at the school. <laughs> yes. Oh, nice. <laughs> and Stacy likes to unleash like a bunch of bullying her way as well. Like she's, uh, she's a huge bully, actually. And ultimately, um, she you know, gets killed. Um, and I really don't think I'm spoiling it by saying this because every advert and every description of the movie pretty much tells you that, you know, the, the killer is, you know, Kelly Martin. Correct. Uh, as Andrea. Um, and, you know, she, uh, it's hard for me when I'm watching this movie because ultimately, yes, I mean, Stacy's character is a cruel and, and vicious person, but I, she doesn't ultimately deserve to die. So, I mean, she is the victim, but when you watch the film, she's not a very sympathetic victim. <laughs> no. Because it is so hard to sympathize with her because she is, like, mean to everybody, you know, and her, and her friends are too afraid to say anything. There's actually a really good moment later in the film after she's been killed when one of the girls, uh, played by Marley Shelton, uh, Jamie, is talking to uh, Andrea in the hallway and she says something to her about looking back, even though she's ashamed to admit it, especially since Stacy is dead. But she basically tells her, you know, I never really liked her. She's like, <laughs> I only hung around her because she was the popular girl. And um, I was like, that's a very true moment. Uh, yes. I really like that they put that in there because, you know, she kind of joined in with all the bullying and stuff. And then, of course, after the fact, she just realizes that, you know, she doesn't necessarily want to be that person. So I like that. Um, and, you know, Tori Spelling does a really good job in this movie. I mean, she she and Kelly Martin, they're both really good in their roles. Yes, but so, Tori I mean, is thought, the scene stealer. Oh, yes. Like, anytime she's on screen, you know, um, it's funny we brought up Stepfather because uh, Terry O'Quinn plays the principal in this film. Oh, that's right. That's right. And he is such a jerk. I mean, <laughs> like, so Tori Spelling and Kelly Martin are working as his office assistants. And he walks in one morning while they're both standing there and looks right at Tori Spelling and says, how is the prettiest office assistant in the world doing oh. today? Jeez. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> if I was Andrea, I'd be like, yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, Andrea had some, Andrea's family, like, so Valerie Harper's also in this movie and she's has a very sort of almost thankless role as uh, Kelly Martin's mom. And the girl who, I can't remember the actress's name, she was on uh, Drew Carey, plays the sister. But Valerie Harper is like a super religious, very like, you know, like the, either you were that kid or you know that kid that no matter how hard he tried to convince his mom, it was really important for him or her to dress a certain way or to buy that those pair of shoes that they just refused to do it and would always get the ugliest thing possible that was guaranteed to get you teased at school. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. And she's that kind of mom, you know, in a lot of ways, I think. Like, she just doesn't understand why it's so important for Kelly Martin to fit in. And it, mm -hmm. and so I think that's meant maybe to further isolate the character 
um, who feels like there's just no way she's ever, because doesn't she save up for like a big puffy ski jacket? Well, what happens is um, she goes to shop for one and realizes there's just no money. And then, of course, she gets made fun of later because she has to settle for like really cheap stuff. And then, of course, as soon as Stacy sees her, she's like, oh, great. You know, did you get those from a local thrift shop? (laughs) (laughs) Which would be super cool now. Yeah. Yeah. It's so ironic. So it's interesting. So Nate picks um, some really popular movies. So, you know, Death of a Cheerleader, which came out, uh, it aired on, I think, NBC, September 26, 1994, was the highest rated movie of that year. Um, It was extremely popular. Uh, It's a little controversial because it's based on um, a real life story about a girl who killed somebody. And... um, Apparently, the girl she killed wasn't nearly as horrible as the movie makes her out to be. And uh, some people who knew the victim, you can find them online talking a little bit about it. And they were really, I think, a little disappointed with the depiction of the cheerleader. Um, However, and also one thing that's really important, there's a couple things that are really important to point out in this movie. One is that the sister, played by the girl from Drew Carey, whose name I can't remember, she cuts cucumbers in her car. She has a cutting board and a knife, which, you know, serves its purpose later for Kelly Martin. And she's just sitting in her car cutting up cucumbers, like, throughout the whole film. And that just seems ridiculous. But it's actually what the killer said her sister did. She said that her sister kept a knife in the car because she liked to cut vegetables while she was sitting in the car. <laughs> so they just didn't put that in there for shits and giggles. They meant it. And... Also, I want to clarify that even though I think it's a station wagon in the movie, it was a full-on Pinto in real life. Oh. Right. Yeah, and I think that needs to be out there for the world to know <laughs> because it's important. But anyway, I, I didn't mean... It was my mom's old Pinto. Yeah, I had a Pinto. I got in a really bad car accident in my Pinto, so... Oh. It didn't blow up, though, but... um. I'm sorry, Nate, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you just, when you start talking, it made me want to throw in some of those facts. Oh, no, I'm glad you did. Um, it's funny because I read the true story as well uh, before doing the show tonight. I was I was reading the, all the articles, the newspaper articles, yeah. I guess, back around when it happened. Ooh. And one thing that it brought up that I thought was interesting um, is that the, um, the girl who was murdered, her parents, um, th- they were not very impressed with the whole like knife in the car cutting vegetable claim <laughs> because in, in the knife she used was like a huge butcher's knife. Yes. And they were thinking, why would somebody keep that kind of knife in the car to cut vegetables? I mean, why like this huge butcher knife? <laughs> uh, that was a quirky family. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> must have been. It was ludicrous. It was ludicrous. But and the killer had actually been released in I think 1992. So that, so two years had passed. So I think it happened in 1984. And then she went to whatever jail, and then came out in 92. And then the movie came out in 94. And she changed her name, and I I can't remember where she's living now. But it's it's pretty public. So she changed her name and everything. Yeah. But you can still find her. I think. But yes. I'm not I'm not gonna out her on the show. But. Definitely. If she wants to leave, leave a comment or anything. Yeah, she can. She can. Oh, yes. Feel free. <laughs> That'd be awesome. We'd love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you want to add to that, Nate? Uh, no, I think that's it. Okay, well, that's a good choice. It's one of uh, my favorite later uh, TV movies. Um, Dan, what's your pick? I, I, may I just say one quick thing? Oh, sure. Uh, before, when I was in high, high school, the only gals I couldn't get to be interested in me at all were all the goth gals, and I don't know why that was. I, I used to try so hard because I loved them, 
but for some reason, they were never interested in me. Were you just that's not little, goth? That, that's, I'm sorry? Were you not goth? I was not. That's I guess why. that's it. That, yeah. That's, that's why. I just, it was too much, too much dress up for me. I just like to put on a flannel and a Garfield t-shirt and some jeans. <laughs> that's, that's all I wanted. Um, okay, so my uh, number three uh, will go back to also based on a true story. That's a lie. Okay. Go I'm back. like looking at your list going, what? April 6th, 1971, ABC in the evening, Christopher George as Cameron Steele, <laughs> escape artist extraordinaire in the movie Escape. Yay. And Escape is he's uh, – it's, it's basically the story of Cameron Steele who is like a, a super world-famous escape artist who – basically seems to be semi-retired in the movie and helps people out. He like, um, well, he helps people out that involve escaping from things. So there's, <laughs> there's talk of like a little girl was trapped in a pipe and he somehow got in the pipe and got her out. Hey, it's Christopher George. I believe it. <laughs> um, and basically the, the story of escape is, uh, and it's all a little overcomplicated, but I'll just try to give it a quick through line here. Um, uh, Cameron Steele gets a call like in the middle of the night to meet a guy named Dr. Walding, played by William Wyndham. Uh, he meets him down by a bridge somewhere. Some guys kidnap Dr. Walding, tie Steele up, throw him in the water. He escapes because he's the world's best escape artist, goes uh, finding Dr. Walding's daughter, who's a fashion photographer, and learns that her dad is on the run for burning down his lab and possibly killing his brother, played by John Vernon. And from there, it all spins off into a really weird world involving uh, Gloria Graham as a Congress, uh, <laughs> Congress uh, congressman's uh, wife who has sold all of her jewelry and all of her art to fund a, an amusement park called Happy Land. Of course. And, but 80 feet underneath Happy Land, there's a secret. And uh, Cameron finds out about the secret. And it's basically, I don't want to give too much away because it gets wonderfully crazy as it goes along. But it has something to do with an organism that Dr. Walding was creating with his brother. And uh, the brother needs the doctor to help him finish this organism. And he has the daughter captive. And uh, Cameron Steele gets in a lot of fights and escapes from <laughs> things. And there's a lot of hanging out in this fantastic elevator shaft. Oh, and maybe just back up one moment. Cameron's best friend and sidekick is played by Avery Schreiber. Correct. And Nicholas Sly is his name. <laughs> um, Cameron Steele lives in the top floor of like the like a magic castle, sort of. He has this swinging bachelor pad with the pool table and everything. And he basically... Brings the broads up there and they hang out and they do whatever it is you do with Christopher George if you're a lady. And um That's a lot, by the way. Yes, That's yes. Fair. And the and and uh it, it's a perfect mix because Cameron is brave and he's tough and he can escape from anything, which when you're getting kidnapped by people a lot and locked in rooms and hung upside down in a straitjacket, is awesome. Uh but Nicholas Sly, his sidekick, is awesome too because he is an art expert. He's a genius. At one point, he does like a police caricature – well, not a caricature, but a police sketch of the people who beat Cameron up. He's also a master chef. 
He does everything, <laughs> and it's awesome. And they basically team up, and they go 80 feet underneath this awesome amusement park to try to save the world because once this organism is released, we're all going to become zombies, slave to the evil John Vernon. Wow. And it's, That's it's quite a, it's the a story. Fan- it's a fantastic, uh, fun, fun movie. I have a soundbite from here. Um, it's a dialogue exchange between the daughter and Cameron Steele. Um, and I think this is kind of indicative with uh, how the pacing and kind of the fun with the dialogue is. So here we go. I will give you fair warning, Mr. Steele. I've been known to throw things at reporters who come around wanting to do a story on whatever happened to Dr. Henry Walding. I love my father very much. I'm not a reporter, Miss Walling. I saw your father last night, just before he was kidnapped. Oh, really? Please tell me how a man wanted for murder can be kidnapped. I was hoping you could tell me. So, that's just some of the mystery digging he does. And it's it's a wonderful movie, I think, because it it does that thing that uh, 70s films like uh, French Connection and others do, where they start off almost a little too fast. And you have right. to kind of the viewer has to kind of catch up to what's going on, and then they're just there are wonderful action scenes. There's a lot of, a lot of great dialogue between the characters, and the plot just gets loopier and loopier. And it ends with a chase through an amusement park that is fantastic, where they do something. I'm it's probably been done before, but I've never seen it done. Which is uh, there's there's a bit where John Vernon's character runs up to a merry-go-round, leaps onto the merry-go-round. And begins to go around it. And my first thought was, if he goes all the way around once, then he needs to pay for that ride. But he doesn't. <laughs> he actually, he goes to the other side of the merry-go-round, leaps off and keeps running. And they do that several times during the chase where um, uh, uh, Cameron Steele will grab onto the back of like one of those little jets that goes up and down. And he'll hang on to it as it carries him around the ride so he can take off running. And it's 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 one of those films that just... Every few minutes, it's got something in it, whether it be a bit of dialogue or an escape scene or that friggin' huge elevator shaft or right. whatever that is, which is really quite lovely. And it's it's um it's a film that brings me a lot of joy. I I, I watch it quite often. So it, it was the uh, second season finale for the ABC movie of the week, and oh, wow. um, it was intended as a pilot film. It unfortunately did not get picked up. There was a little period of time there. I feel like from like seventy. I guess whenever House on Green Apple Road came out to like maybe 74 or so, it seemed like Christopher George was in a lot of prospective pilots. Yes. Yeah. And um, and House on Green Apple Road did become Dan August and he wasn't interested in it. But I guess afterwards he was th- he was interested in doing these. Like there was something called The Heist and uh, The Hanging Man maybe. And I feel like those were all pilots, but don't quote me on that. And um, this was written, and I know we discussed this, and I think it's important to mention, this was written by a guy named Paul Playden, who um, also wrote a TV movie called Beg, Borrow, or Steal, which I'll mention, I'll come back to here in a second. And he also wrote several episodes of The Magician. And Mm. why I think Beg, Borrow, Borrow, or Steal is interesting is that it's about three people who all have different disabilities. Um, One guy's in a wheelchair, one guy's blind, and the other guy lost both his hands in Vietnam. And they do a heist, a jewelry heist. And I think that the screenwriter was um, preoccupied with like stunts and like magic and yeah. escaping and like doing these things that you weren't you couldn't think were possible, but that they could make mm. possible in these films. And he and he was really good at um, setting up stuff. I think for the mm. you know whatever the money shot was and Big Barrow steal it's stealing the diamond. And I'm telling you that robbery scene is amazing. Okay. 
Yeah, I so. need to see that. That sounds fantastic. It's yeah. really good. And this is this is directed by John Llewellyn Moxie, who's Yay. um who is uh, who's did so many of these, and there's he's, he's very he's very good. He's very good. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. He's um, I mean, I think he probably directed more TV movies than just about anybody. I mean, there's a couple that rival him. I can't think of their names offhand. I want to say like Walter Grauman, but I could be wrong. But um, he just they just went to him, <laughs> like it seemed like every other week, and they were like, "Hey, John, mm-hmm. you want to make a movie?" And sure. and he made a lot of movies. Um, very few of them um, weren't. Like, okay, I'll say most of his movies were good. A couple were mediocre. As far as I can tell in my filmography, like what I've seen, um, I don't think I've seen a bad film that he's made. Oh, wow. He just doesn't do, make bad movies. And he'll definitely come up later today, as a matter of fact, and I yes. think throughout this podcast because he's a very important um, figure mm-hmm. in the TV movie. Um, is there anything else you want? Oh, Nate, have you seen Escape? I have not seen it, but it sounds amazing. It's really fun. I, I... I recommend it. It's it's quite uh, it's it's quite a joy. I really like it. And then if if you want to try the magician, the Bill Bixby TV TV movie TV series, which is sort of like it, um, but not quite. I would recommend that also. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, uh, and you may have mentioned this, and I didn't hear it or I forgot already, is uh, uh, Cameron Steele had a pretty cool pad, right? You oh, mentioned yes. it's yeah. like I mean just the art direction in the film is worth it. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. It's yeah. very yeah. very early 70s. Yeah. And oddly enough it, it just occurred to me that the first hour long episode of The Magician mm-hmm. actually has has more crazy pardon me has more crazy <laughs> stunts in it than actual magic. There oh, interesting. Stunt scenes with Bill Bixby, one involving like a, a bridge, uh, suspension bridge going up, and the guys are running on the bridge, but it's slowly going into the air, oh, so cool. they're like climbing. Sure. And then there's another one where he's on top of an ambulance trying to stop it from taking his friend away, uh, and it, the ambulance just keeps going through low hanging um, garages and stuff, and and it's I think it's Bill. It looks like Bill Bixby. On oh, there. cool. It's just. It's really so. So that could have been something related to all those stunts and escape. Because you would think with escape, an escape artist is going to have more stunts in the show than a magician who's going to have more doves and rings that kind of like lock <laughs> together, you know. And yes. Suddenly they're not, you know. So that's but interesting. That's, yeah, but that's that's a uh, yeah, that's about all on escape. It's it's a I think it's a it's a joyful fun film that uh, you should watch. Why not? Yeah, I I agree. I think it's really good. Um, okay, so I'll just go to my third one. Uh, I picked a movie that apparently is really rare. Uh, I'm finding out. It's called Fantasies. Uh, it came out in 1982. It aired on ABC. Um, of course, I don't have my notes on me. I'll get the date for you. Um, oh, January 18th, 1982. I watched this when it originally aired. Um, the lure of it was that uh, it's a it's a kind of a slasher, very light slasher movie about a woman who created a nighttime soap opera. Um, and they use real daytime soap actors to play the actors in the nighttime soap opera, which is pretty meta, I guess, for 1982. And so the movie is loosely about a woman, um, Carla Webb, played by Suzanne Plachette, who is this divorced mm-hmm. housewife who um, basically turns her entire life around by creating a television series that becomes a nighttime hit. She is really, like, strong-willed. I believe she was um, probably modeled after Gloria Monty who was the uh, producer at the time of General Hospital and was this phenomenal. She brought millions and millions of people to the show. She was People were terrified of her on the set. I believe her nickname was <laughs> the Dragon Lady. Um, 
they loved her and they hated her at the same time, but she was a powerhouse. And I think Carla Webb is supposed to be sort of in that same vein. And um, somebody is taking the show a little too seriously, so they start picking off the cast members one by one and working their way up to Carla. And um, that's pretty much the film. But what's, it's just really interesting because uh, I like the way it merged um, the two genres together because I've always felt that soaps and uh, horror movies have sort of the same... There's a lot of melodrama, um, and they have very passionate fan bases. And it just in general, I see a lot of connections between the two. And the, the writer, uh, David Levinson, um, actually based his story loosely off of, well, I guess you should say inspired is a better way of putting it. He was inspired by a lot of real uh, crime cases that were happening, including um, a kid who killed... Uh, a relative, I think, or an older woman, because he said there was too much violence on television and it was influencing him. Also, there was, after uh, Born Innocent aired, a nine-year-old girl was raped by her friends. And that went to a congressional hearing and started the family viewing hour, where you couldn't show things like that in certain times on network television. Um, and John Lennon was another influence. And he was really fascinated by... Uh, you know, the fan who blurred the lines of what was reality and what wasn't. And so a couple years ago, so Robert S. Woods, who played Bo Buchanan on One Life to Live, has a cameo. Very, If you blink and you'll miss it. But he was on the movie enough that um, he had some stories about it. And he did a podcast a few years ago when One Life to Live went online to promote the show. And I called in and I got to speak to him, which was the thrill of my life. And I asked him about working on fantasies. And he told me that the actor who from One Life to Live, Gerald Anthony, who played Marco Dane, um, didn't want him making the movie. He thought the movie was actually going to give people ideas. And he was really worried about the reaction of it. And it's interesting. And Robert S. Woods was like, well, I think that's crazy and I'm going to make it. And, but the movie does deal with these like sort of really crazy fans who like throw stuff at you because you're dating somebody that they don't think you should be dating or you broke their heart or something. And, um, Robert S. Woods actually told a story in, in a newspaper when the movie came out to promote it about being tackled by a fan outside the ABC studios in New York. And um, so there is some truth to it, but not enough that I think Robert S. Woods felt like people were going to go out and kill other people. And um, I should also say Robert Matson, who plays Heather on General Hospital, is in it. Stuart Damon, who played Alan Quartermain, is in it. Uh, Peter Bergman, who plays Jack Abbott on Young and the Restless, is in it. And there's another actor whose name I can't remember, and I think he's from Ryan's Hope. He's in it. And... Um, it's just a really fascinating blur the lines and it actually has a really meta ending and I don't really want to spoil it now, but um, it's kind of a, a really smart film. It's probably smarter than people give it credit for. Of course, nobody can give it any credit because it's really, really rare and it took me a long time yes. to find my copy of it. I only ever saw it the one time it aired and then apparently it aired a couple times on TBS Um and somebody managed to get it on video, and I was able to get that copy. But otherwise, it seems pretty lost to the world. And um, I think uh, I'll ask you guys both if you've seen it, but I think I know the answer. So has he, anybody seen Fantasies? No, sadly. No. I, want I, I wish I have. It sounds fantastic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I was going to, as, as you were talking about, uh, like, the way soap opera fans get, I, I was reading something about uh, a long time ago about British soap operas like Coronation Street and the Archers and Emmerdale and um, right. uh, Enders, and reading about um, uh, 
one guy who had written for, a, I think it was an old soap called Crossroads, I think. Yes. Um, and he, he would say that um, he, he was the head writer and they would send him all the fan mail. And he said the majority of the fan mail was actually written to characters on the show. Uh-huh. Not to the not to the actors, but to characters. And some of it would be like, "Oh, you're the best," and da da da. But occasionally, it would be a letter like, uh, "You know, I see what you're doing uh, behind your wife's back, and I don't think it's right." And then he'd get a letter to the wife saying, "Here's what your husband's doing uh, oh, behind your back." That's crazy. And stuff like that. And he, and he said he said it was it was it was. It was it was it was interesting and slightly nutty at the same time. Yeah, but. you know what? I kind of wish I'd pulled this out. So I actually took a screenshot after this. I want to play soundbite too. I forgot to play the soundbite, but um, <laughs> the uh, okay. So and I won't go into it because it's polarizing for fans. But an actor on Young and the Restless was recently fired for sexual harassment of a cast member, and um, okay, this actor is really popular, and a lot of people sided with the actor and they said that she was lying. And, and this is the real story. This isn't a storyline from the soap. And they would get online and they were really upset about this whole thing. And she was a whore. It was horrible. So um, somebody on some comment after a news article said something about, well, she obviously wants him to touch her. She pours uh, water over herself when she's just wearing a really thin white shirt and nothing but a bra to get attention. And then somebody responded and they said, that's what the character does in, mm-hmm. on the show, not not the actress and he was like oh yeah right and I don't have it word for word but I took a little screenshot of it because I couldn't believe what I was looking at and I was like so that's interesting that you brought that up and I kind of wish I thought of this earlier to read it to you but I was like wow some people don't know how to separate yes that line and I think I mean it's weird because I I think that phenomenon happens in primetime as well but not as much Mm -hmm. and maybe it's because you're looking at the same person five hours a day or five hours a week, that it starts to like become. It's in your living room more, so maybe it feels more real to you. But that's a really interesting phenomenon. So anyway, yeah. I just wanted to show that. So here's a, a soundbite. I really, really like this this scene from the movie. Doesn't it bother you putting something this trashy on the air? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Don't lie. 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 Well, it's not a question of allowing. I mean, well, I'm sure you're all aware there's been a tremendous sexual revolution in the last 10 years. And, well, people are trying to deal with alternative lifestyles. And what what Milton tries to do is to reflect all those lifestyles, deal with it. Including your daughter. Especially my daughter. Well, I'm certainly glad you're not my mother. I am, too. Yeah, I love that. Carla just doesn't, nobody phases her, you know. And even when all these murders are happening, um, like there's this really great scene where she gets attacked. And, oh, I forgot to mention, oh, no, I'm forgetting his name. Um, The actor who played the first Sam Rappaport on One Life to Live, there were two actors who played him. Um, He's on Twitter, and and I talked to him about being in this movie. He has a very small part. His first film he ever did was Fantasies. He plays the delivery guy. And um, she's getting choked to death, and somebody knocks on the door, and 
so the killer runs off in terror, like, oh, I don't want to get caught. So he takes off and she answers the door and he's like, here's your script delivery. And he's like, did I come at a bad time? And she's like, you'll never know what you walked in on or whatever. She's got this quip and you're like, wow, you almost got killed. And she's just like, you know what? She just like puts her hair back, you know, flicks her hair back and is like, oh, whatever, another day. And, um, and I, I love the resiliency. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But I love that yeah. resiliency that she has. Um, in the film, the character, and it's a lot of fun, so I recommend it if you can find it. Yeah. And that's where I am with that. So we'll go back to Nate. And Nate, what is your second pick? Uh, my second pick, I'm going to travel from 1994 <laughs> back in time to the late 70s. It's a good place to um, be. Oh, yes. It's a great place. Uh, my second pick is called The Spell. Uh-huh. And a lot of people, you know, you know, say, uh, you know, it's a carry ripoff, which yeah, it kind of is. I mean, it uh, uses the whole telekinesis angle. And um, basically, Lee Grant uh, plays a mother whose da- oldest daughter is overweight and kind of lonely and kind of picked on at school. So she start. I mean, she has telekinesis. So, of course, she starts, you know, getting revenge on those that she feels have wronged her. And that's basically about as simple the plot description as I can get. And it was difficult for me to choose this one because I love it so much, but the best part of the movie is the ending, but I don't want to ruin oh, it. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of a catch-22. Well, you can just say that there's an incredible <laughs> duel at the oh, end. Oh, yes. It is amazing, and, you know, I, I love the, the, just the finale with the big battle is probably one of my favorite scenes of, like, television movie history. Oh, it's so good. It's so yes. good. It's well. It's a. I mean, it's a really solid film, and I. Th- I don't know who the actress is who plays the overweight, put upon, bullied girl, but she's really good because there are moments where you start to feel sorry for her, but she's always got this sort of like half cocked grin on her face, like she knows that she's got this power, and that even if you don't give two shits about her. Um, she's going to get you. You know what I mean? Like sympathy or not, you're on her list. Yes, 100%. And, um, I'm a big fan of Lee Grant. Yes. Um, and I love her in this film. She is so good, but I I think she's good in every film that I've seen her in, but Mm. I just love watching her in the spell because as the mother, she, even though she knows that, you know, her daughter is, you know, not very well behaved or anything. She's the kind of mother that always kind of makes excuses for, her, you know, and things mm-hmm. like that, which, you know, I mean, when the big climactic scenes come up and, um, you see like, I guess different sides to characters in the film, it just makes the climax even better. Absolutely. Also, you know, like I think another really good scene in that movie, I think it's right at the beginning when they're in the gym and uh, the girl in the horrible wig is making fun of her, and she's—I think she has to oh, climb yes. a rope. Oh yes, the rope climbing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yes. like just the yes. way that scene is shot, and um, she does her like somebody's doing powers right in that scene, and yes. she falls, and that and they've got that really great uh, camera shot of the gym teacher and her stopwatch, and the way she she like stops the watch after the girl falls, and I mean it's a really effective, weird, um, creepy scene. I think it's really good. Oh yes, one hundred percent. It's it's a it's a great scene, and um, one thing that's really good about this one is um, you know there will be like a, a scene where you know something big will happen, and you know there's kind of a plot twist, 
and you almost think it's over. And then there's still like an additional amount of time to go right. where the real battle ends mm-hmm. up taking place, right. which is really good. It was almost kind of a fake out ending, I think, in a way. Yeah. Not Maybe not intentionally to the audience to fake them out, but I was tricked. I mean, I thought that the movie was over, <laughs> but no, it's not over yet. I should, I'm going to play a soundbite too, but also uh, when the soundbite's over, we might want to talk about that, uh, the infamous like spontaneous combustion scene. Yes. That's really fucking amazing. Okay. And I'm sorry. I, I'm trying not to curse, but that's just who I am. Okay. So here we go. <laughs> So that's sort of the scene where I guess um, the mom. So that's Linda Hunt, right? Or Helen Hunt? Oh my God, I'm getting yes, mixed up now. Helen Hunt. Okay, not Linda Hunt. <laughs> Helen Hunt yeah. That would have been a whole other film, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> Helen Hunt, who was a child actress, and I always forget that until I see her in something and she's ten, and I'm like, whoa, um, is the pretty sister who uh, has all the love of her father and none of the love of her sister, and um, and she sort of inadvertently catches. Uh, her sister and the gym teacher um, doing some kind of chanting alone in the gym teacher's house, which is crosses so many lines, I can't even begin to tell you. And mm-hmm. she happens to be with Mrs. Bellamy, and Mrs. Bellamy is the unfortunate <laughs> spontaneously combustion, uh, I don't even know how to put that in a sentence, victim, um, in this really amazing scene where Lee Grant goes to visit her, I guess to get some answers about what's happening to her daughter, and um, she <laughs> she doesn't really do much except sort of blow up. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much it. I mean, it's a long scene, and it's horrifying because her husband is standing there, sort of watching this painful transformation of her, his wife, as she's slowly, like I guess, burning from inside. And it must be one of the most famous scenes of seventies horror TV. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's pretty iconic. I would think so. I'd agree with that. It's good times for sure. So Dan, have you seen you've seen the spell, right? I've seen it a couple times. Yes, yes, I I do like it, and I do like the fact that it is. Um, I I do like a good carry variation, and this one. Um, I always think it's like I I have the the, you know, no one's lonelier than Carrie, you know, and it's uh it's nice to see that at least the gym teacher likes this gal, 
<laughs> you know, my my gym my gym teacher used to uh, make fun of my name and throw basketballs at my groin. So you know, hey, we all we all go through different things. Wow, that's tough. Ah, he was okay. He had his own problems. I guess so. Didn't we all want to pull a carry at the prom though, or is that just me? Um, I I was okay. My prom was a little dull. Oh yeah, I really wanted everybody to die. Oh well, I I, I didn't have. have it. I didn't have such a great time in um, <laughs> high school. So anyway, uh, just because I looked it up. So uh, this movie aired on February 20th, 1977. It is an NBC uh, movie of the week. It was directed by Lee Phillips, who is a really phenomenal uh, small screen director. He did Sweet Hostage and also The Girl Most Likely To with Stalker Channing, which was based off oh, a yeah. script by Joan Rivers. Um, probably one of my all-time favorite TV movies. And uh, it was written by my old teacher, Brian Taggart, who I now I know the other movie I was thinking of. He wrote a movie called Night Cries from the early 70s with Susan St. James and William Conrad. Was William Conrad canon? Yes. Yes. And um, I think Michael Parks might have played her husband. And it's about a woman who has a baby. And I can't remember. Now I can't remember. I think she loses the baby, but she keeps hearing a crying baby wherever she goes. And she starts having these weird dreams about a house, and then she has to kind of tie everything together. It's really good. So anyway, um, there's a lot of really talented people involved in that movie. And Brian Taggart, of course, really likely Grant as a person. I remember him talking about her in uh, class because he made the spell, and I think he got to know her doing that. And I think when he wrote Visiting Hours, he had her in mind uh, for the part because he just really liked And who can play? You know, Lee Grant was a – I don't know if you guys know this, but she was blacklisted. Um during the McCarthy era from Hollywood. And she's one of the few actors that is still left from that era. And um, she had to sort of fight her way back like a lot of those actors did. Um, and she just she just comes across as a really strong person in real life. Um, and I think that really carries over to the character. She, and, you know, I have to say in the spell, she smokes a lot. Yes. <laughs> you remember that? She's always she's in bed smoking, yeah. Yeah. you know. And it's just like, wow. And I just love her. I love her. I know you're not supposed yeah. to smoke and it's not supposed to be glamorous, but she makes it look amazing. <laughs> so, is there anything awesome. anybody wanted to add? No. No, I don't think so. Okay, Dan, do you want to give us Oh, your I do like the, oh. the layout. I'm sorry, one thing. I do like the layout of their house. Isn't like the entrance way up high? Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah I used to write... The... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that's all. That's, I, oh. I, like I used to write for a website um, called Camp Blood Horror for Homos. And uh, it's the first place I remember a website doing Movie of the Week reviews. And so I wrote some capsule reviews for um, them. And they had, you could pick these sort of tags for your reviews, like Proto Slasher or whatever. And one of them was like houses that look like Mexican restaurants. <laughs> and that the sp he, and he reviewed the spell I didn't and he gave it that tag so that always sticks in my mind whenever I watch the movie but um he, he's a little correct on that so okay what's yeah. your second pick uh, my second pick is and this is this is kind of a pretty obvious one so I won't I won't go too crazy on it because many people have written about it but it's um the John Llewellyn Moxie directed it Richard Matheson wrote it based on an unpublished novel by Jeff Rice the recently deceased Jeff Rice yes Darren McGavin is Kolchak in the Night Stalker yay uh, oh can I play this promo real quick let's please. get this out of the way it's really good Introduce myself. My name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. It's Kolshak. 
reports the bizarre, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You were again in another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field has issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorsini's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin. The Night Stalker. I love that promo. Fantastic. And that's that's uh that's that that's pretty much all you need to know. It's um it's it's set in Vegas, uh circa I guess it would have been probably late seventy one. Kolchak's a reporter. He has a girlfriend named Gail, who's played by uh, Carol Lindley. Correct. He has a very dyspeptic, is that the correct word, um, <laughs> editor, uh, played by Simon Oakland, named uh, Vincenzo. And basically, Kolchak is, is one of those reporters, classic reporters. He's got a great hat, and he's got his um, camera with the flash, and he's always getting right in there. And someone is killing the ladies in Vegas and draining them of blood. And gradually, as you may have gauged from the promo, it turns out to be a real live vampire living in Vegas. And um, uh, uh, Kolchak gets in some trouble with the local authorities, um, one of whom is played by Claude Akins. So, you know, that's that's good police work. <laughs> right there. Yeah. Right there. He's I think it's like Sheriff Butcher or something like that, I, I believe is his character's name. But it's um it's it's a it's a great movie because it's um it takes um of course they were doing it with count yorga at the time and they do it with blackula a year or so later but it, it takes it's the, it's sort of the tv movie putting the classic vampires who we've been seeing for four decades on the big screen and the small screen and putting them in a modern day yes. very um very very modern very sort of exciting vegas in the early 70s setting but having a you know 100 year old vampire running around doing crazy crap and killing people and it has and and uh darren mcgavin is wonderful and there are several gloriously weird moments in it like there there is uh a moment where they find a woman's body in the middle of like um i don't even know what it is like a sand pit or something like that and her body's like right in the center of it like 40 feet in or something and but there are no footprints in or out mm. and they're all looking around going well how'd she get there and Kolchak just kind of turns and goes did he throw her and it's like Woo, maybe he did and yes, <laughs> he probably did and and so yeah the the film is there's a wonderful uh sequence and it's it's John Llewellyn Moxie doing the action again there's a wonderful sequence when the vampire escapes from a hospital when he's been stealing blood which is really stunt filled and yes. exciting yes and 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 Kolchak uh, you know gets sort of deeper and deeper into it it all culminates in the vampire's house you know trying to drive that stake through this crazy man's heart who is a vampire. I don't know if I'm spoiling anything for anyone. I know it's been over 40 years, but that's <laughs> one of the one of the joys of it is they don't pull it like a Scooby Doo or something and make him not be a vampire right. in the end. He is as supernatural as you think he is. And 
the movie, it was, it's another ABC movie of the week. I believe it was up against like Hawaii Five O. And Hawaii Five O that evening didn't get very good ratings. Mm-hmm. Oh, it may have actually. No, but, um, I don't think it did. Uh, uh, Night Stalker, let's see, got a 33.2 rating, 54% share, and was up at that time the highest rated TV movie of all time. Correct. Uh, yeah, it uh, beat out Brian's song, which was then wow. at that point. Then that's saying something. And yeah, I, I mean, people love their horror. Yeah, they do. And I think this came so early in the game that I think that this might have been a really big stepping stone for, I think ABC was, I'm sure they were already producing horror movies, but um, I'm sure they saw that and they were like, wow, this is what people want to see, you know? Yeah. And then they just worked around that, you know, idea. And and obviously after that, a year later, there was another uh, movie called The Night Strangler, Mm -hmm. which is uh, set in Seattle. Which is also pretty darn good. I I don't know if I like it quite as much as Night Stalker, but that's I I think the version that circulates is the an extended version. Oh, I think. I I think I think because some places I read say it air, Night Strangler aired in a ninety minute time slot like Night Stalker, but the version that's available is ninety six ninety seven minutes, so it would have been more for a two hour slot, and it feels like. There are sort of one too many arguments between Kolchak and Vincenzo. <laughs> You're like, I think you guys, you guys accomplished this argument like 20 minutes ago, and so it's a little, it's a little flabbier. But I believe Joanne Paflug is in it. Oh yeah, I love to say Paflug too. Paflug's awesome. And then obviously the the series was on. It ran for a season. It's a very entertaining show. Repetitive, sure, but Darren McGavin is able sure. to and and a keep big. Inspiration for shows like The X Files, and definitely. Um, it yeah. definitely has a legacy. Um, mm-hmm. the The only real piece of trivia I have, well, first of all, I just two pieces of trivia. Does everybody know that Joanne Puflug, uh at one point was married to Chuck Woolery? I do. It's amazing, I, I right? That. Is that the coolest? I knew that. That's pretty astounding. He's had like five or six wives. He's had a bunch of wives, but Joanne Puflug got in line early on, and um, she got her her love, walking papers love, soon after. Love reconnection. <laughs> yeah. but anyway I just I don't know why but every time I see her and I see her a lot because I watch a lot of classic TV I'm mm-hmm. always like she used to be married to Chuck Woolery and that kind of <laughs> makes me happy um, so the only thing that I have about this movie is that um, the original producer was actually somebody named Everett Chambers who left the who left the movie to work on Columbo and so Dan Curtis wasn't there from the beginning he came in I think he came in pretty early on but um, because I think I read somewhere that John Willem Moxie, he didn't think originally uh, John Willem Moxie would want to work with him because he turned him down at some point for something else. And so he he wasn't sure he was going to be able to get him as a director. But then they, uh, I think this was their first collaboration together. Yeah. The, yeah, I kind of wish he directed The Night Strangler because I think. Uh, yeah, Dan Strangler Curtis did that, right? Didn't Dan Curtis yeah, go yeah. ahead? Yeah. Um, also, also Jeff Rice, who who wrote the Kolchak Papers, which was an unpublished novel, and I'm assuming now it's published. I don't really know, but um, he worked for our. I'm from Vegas, right? So he worked for the Ve- local Vegas paper, which was called the Las Vegas Sun, in mm. real life. And I just thought that was cool because it's a real yeah, paper. Yeah, that is cool. I'm very that familiar cool. with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The. Go ahead. Oh, I'm. I was going to say I, the thing about Night Stalker. At the end of the day, is it's probably like one of those that if you love. TV movies, you love Darren McGavin, if you love vampires, you've written or seen or, or something on it. It's just it's just one of those. So yeah. I, don't, I don't have too much to add apart from if you haven't seen it, you should. And if you enjoy it, proceed along and, and see, see yeah. how it goes. And I think they're on Netflix. 
right now, or at least uh, the, the movies the TV, are? The series. Oh, the not series the movies. Oh, Netflix. okay. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to mention real quick before I forget, The Spell is streaming on Amazon Instant Video. So if you have a Prime account, okay. you can watch it for free. Um, okay, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that that was it. Uh, watch and enjoy uh, Kolchak as the Night Stalker. So, Nate, have you seen the Night Stalker? I have not. Oh, my God. I know. <gasps> but my problem is... something to look forward to. I have never been a big vampire movie fan, so I kind of avoided it just because I'm not a huge vampire fan. But, um, I mean, I am a TV movie fan, well, so I might have to see it anyway. It might be on our list of movies we're planning on talking about. But, Nate, you well, know I'm doing... I'm going to have to. I'm going to do this with all the love in my heart, but... <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think. To, to be honest, I'm not a big vampire movie fan either. Um, I, uh, and I don't, I don't know that you quite need to be. It's actually, it's um, the vampire is almost presented more as a serial killer, and sometimes like a super action throwing Correct. people around kind of guy. Well, it's also really about McGavin's character. I mean, it it's really, really about Carl Kolchak and like this grizzled sort of, but what's really interesting about Darren McGavin. Um, and, uh, I don't know how to preface this actually without going to long story, so I won't, but he, he was a, like an every man's man, but there was something about him that I found really appealing as well as a woman. And, um, I think that he just translated really well to people, the actor in, mm-hmm. in, in different ways that maybe we didn't understand at the time. It's hard to explain. He just had a little bit of everything. And, you know, I look at him at Christmas story and I never think, Oh my God, he's so hot. But there, there's something <laughs> about him, his charisma that really mm. translates to me, especially as Kolchak. So like he, in the first film, well, obviously in both of them, he has really beautiful girlfriends, right? So Carol yes. Winley is like stunning. And, but you get it when you're watching the movie, like their yeah. chemistry is there and he, um, he's just appealing. And just for, just to watch Darren McGavin in action, really, yeah, it's worth the price of the ticket, yeah. you know? Yeah. You might try, Nate, you might try, say like the, the night strangler, uh, instead to start with, you're not going to miss, there's not much continuity between the two really. Oh, okay. um, you might, but you might, you might try that. Like I said, I, I think it's a little over long, but, um, that could be extended footage unfortunately um so yeah we're gonna make you watch it eventually nate so just uh yeah buck up buck up (laughs) okay so i'm just gonna go ahead and go to my number two um and i picked uh dark knight of the scarecrow another classic uh i think we all picked classics for number our number twos and i have a really great promo here which is actually available on the dvd that came out a couple years ago um and here it is Tonight on the CBS Saturday Night Movies, this gentleman saved this little girl's life, but they accused him of harming her. Do this ourselves. And he was tragically murdered. Now, one by one, the men of this town are dying. Who is his avenger? Is it the dead man's grief-stricken mother? They killed my boy! The little girl who loved him. Or could it be the Scarecrow? So I just want to mention, uh, I didn't catch it the first thousand times I listened to that promo, but he's like, and then they were, he was tragically murdered. And now he's getting his revenge. Like his voice just swings <laughs> from like complete sadness to like, you know, I hate the That's world. Announcing. <laughs> it is. It's really good. Um, but I just noticed that now. Um, so Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, it's a classic. Um, 
I think most people who watch TV movies, especially horror TV movies, are uh, absolutely familiar with it. Um, so I'll just briefly go over it. It's about a guy named Bubba, who is, I guess, uh, he's, uh, you know, mentally retarded. Uh, he's what I would on PC called the idiot man-child, although I think that doesn't necessarily apply here. But he's the men mentally uh, disabled guy who's got, you know, whatever. He's this hulking guy in the but with the mind of a six-year-old, and he plays with this little girl down the way from him, and um, he's the town freak. He gets treated pretty badly from some of the adults, and one day when he's playing with the little girl, um, she gets attacked by a dog, and he takes her to her house to get her taken care of, and as word tends to spread in small towns, they get the gossip wrong, and they say that she was killed, and that she was killed by Bubba, and um, so this sort of vigilante group led by Charles Durning decides that they're going to hunt down Bubba and make him pay for his crime. And he runs home terrified, and his mom, played by Marlon Brando's sister, Jocelyn Brando, um, I think this is the only thing I've ever seen her in, um, she tells him to hide and play the Scarecrow, which is this game that I guess they used to play. And so he goes out into the field, and he puts himself in the Scarecrow outfit and is playing like he's a Scarecrow, but Charles Durning catches him in the field, and, and they murder him. And then, of course, two seconds later, they're like, she was attacked by the dog and saved by Bubba, and she's still alive. And so they basically killed an innocent man. And then there's a court hearing, but being as small towns are, there's corruption and things don't work out. And so the men are set free. But then something starts killing them one by one. You'll notice all of these are one by one. I really like one by one movies. So, um, And so the rest of the movie, like I guess almost two-thirds of the film, it unfolds. They all start getting picked off. And... Uh, but the most interesting aspect of the movie, besides the fact that it's legitimately terrifying and it's beautifully shot, I think it rivals any theatrical horror film that was released at that time. I yes. think uh, aside from all of that, it's Charles Durning's character that really brings me in every time because he, you get that he's kind of disgusting, small-minded, um, perhaps an idiot, uh, but he may or may not be a pedophile. And you start, all these little things start to become uncovered as the film progresses. And he's more than just a guy who thought he was doing this vigilante hero, heroic act. He's got a lot of problems. And he's a fascinating character and he's despicable. And I can't take my eyes off him, you know. And uh, he's wonderful in the part. Also, I rewatched this movie recently. And... Um, mm -mm. And yes, and I have to say that it's upsetting all the way up to Bubba's death. It's it's almost it, the older I get, the harder it is for me to watch it um, because it's so wrong. Even if the girl had. Well, we, of course, know that he didn't do anything, but like it's just really hard to watch the way they treat him. And I think it's even though it's like to the extreme because they think he killed this little girl, I think it's a bird's eye view as to how his life probably was in that town. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's just very effective. In um, The characters are really effective in drawing you in and making you feel certain things for them. And they're consistent with maintaining those feelings. Uh, it's just really well executed. And um, just a little bit of trivia I picked up. So I talked about how TV movies don't have long shooting schedules. This was shot in 17 days in Piru, California. And um, it's interesting. I can't find a lot of information about the movie, but it's a cult, it's a cult item. And um, it's, it's just almost everybody I know has seen it. Uh, it's so popular that 
actually somebody recently released a Bubba mask and you can buy it at Target. And I'm just going to put yeah, that I've out there. Yeah, I've seen that. I said, yeah. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, and also Horror Hound Magazine said it was actually the first of the Killer Scarecrow movies, um, which I think is interesting because as we know, uh, Scarecrow's gone wild and Scarecrow's and the other scarecrows and there's a bunch of them now also i looked at there's a website called then and now movie locations and they did dark night of the scarecrow and it's really interesting the town looks almost exactly the same it has not changed since this first aired on um, october 24th 1981 on cbs so i thought that was really interesting and just as a piece of trivia um i am such a big dark night of the scarecrow fan that i actually have a t-shirt a an etch an etched glass, meaning I have a drinking glass with the Dark Knight of the Scarecrow image etched onto it, which we paid for. And I also have a cardboard standee, which is sitting on my bookshelf right now. And my desktop wallpaper is actually from Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Wow. And yet it's not my number one, but it's it's right up there uh, for mm. my favorite TV movies of all time. Um, I And I did not see this as a kid. I only saw it really as a teenager when it used to air on TBS for Halloween. But it has stuck with me, and as the years pass, it only gets better. And have you guys seen it? Of course, yeah, yes, definitely. One one of the things that I I noticed about it, when I my wife had never seen it. We watched it uh, a weekend or two. I got I got the Blu-ray of it, and it looks oh my god, it looks so good. And one of the one of the things I we were kind of giggling at until we realized what its purpose was was the fact that no matter where he goes, Charles Durning's character, who is the postmaster, yes. is always dressed as the postmaster. Yes. And at first, I, I I slightly giggled at that, and then I thought, but no, wait. I mean, he's in a small town, and that's his his uniform. Correct. So that 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 is his his sort of emblem of respect. So he wears it everywhere, even when he's killing mentally retarded men hiding in scarecrows. Correct. He's a jerk, basically, is what you're saying. Basically, basically, yeah. He got that going postal thing pretty good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nate? That's a good choice. I really like that movie yeah, a lot. And actually, the final scene of that film is one of those oh. images that's burned in my brain. Yes. That I'll never forget it. <laughs> oh, it's like, so good. It's such a, I don't know, I think haunting ending. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is, well, it's, I mean, it's such a, it's really a sad movie, you know, yes. like just the act itself is, and, and the injustice of the courtroom scene, you know, when they're like not guilty and the mom is freaking out and she's like cursing them or whatever. And, but it's still like, you can really feel like, even though it's like a supernatural movie, it feels so realistic in some ways, you know, yeah. like the humanity of it, I guess, or lack of humanity is, uh it just permeates every frame you know it sticks with you yeah and that and that and that yes. moment when Char charles durning goes to the mom and is sort of you know kind of af after bubba's died and is kind of talking to him she she's he's convinced that she's right um causing grief for them and uh he's just going on and on and she just says like just one sentence like i've seen the way you look at that little girl and then it's instantly like his Charles Durning's face, his face drops and he's gone. He moves. You've never seen him move so fast. Right. And it's just kind of this chilling moment where it's like, oh, God. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, even wow. the little girl, like, what's that part where, and I think it's in the promo where she's like, I know what you did. Oh, that's that's a great scene. Where he, the, is that the, 
he corners her too, you know, in yeah. the at the costume party and the Halloween party, yeah. And you're just like, what's he gonna do to this girl? You know? Oh, such a good movie. Yeah. And if if you want to watch another movie that's that's not nearly as good but entertaining involving four guys who um, <laughs> assault uh, assault someone and uh, and and they're supernatural involved, it's not a TV movie. But Meat Cleaver Massacre is a movie about four. I love four. Meat Cleaver Massacre. Meat, Meat Cleaver Massacre is fantastic. I wrote about and it for Hysteria Lives. Oh, oh wow! The, it's 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 great. It's it's also four guys. They hurt a guy really badly and his whole he, family that guy calls yep yeah, calls up a demon and it's about these four guys getting um sort of hunted down by the demon and that's killed. interesting although there are no meat cleavers involved if i remember correctly no. but i could be wrong but you know what yeah. that murder scene is really upsetting when they show up at the family's house and it's all because like that's... the professor got a good barb right doesn't isn't there like a little tete-a-tete yeah. -tete of wits and a really like, so, like static not very witty scene but the professor yes. gets one up on him and then he's like we're gonna go kill your family and you're like yeah. wow really sensitive yeah it's uh, yeah yeah that's uh yeah i don't mean to go off on too much no but a, that's an interesting <laughs> connection because i always attribute it to nightmare on elm street because mm. of the like dreams and mm -hmm. you know but anyway wow blow my mind yeah this is this is yeah. I need. To, I want to watch Dark Knight: The Scarecrow again right now. Wow. I do too. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. So good. Um, if anybody has anything else to add, I guess we'll go to Nate's uh, number one. All right, the number ones. Oh, number one. This is absolutely my favorite TV film of all time. I can't even think of anything bad to say about any scene in this movie. It's called Home for the Holidays. It's, oh, such a good one. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I love this film. Um, so the basic plot line is uh, four sisters are called uh, back home uh, by their father uh, during the Christmas holidays. And he tells them that he's dying and he thinks that his new wife is slowly poisoning him to death. So that's why he's brought them back. And they end up getting uh, trapped there. You know, there's a lot of storms. They end up getting trapped, and somebody in the house starts killing off the others. And it's it's um it's very well acted, um, and it features um, a lot of you know fairly well known uh, stars. You know, Sally Field, uh, very young. Yes, Sally Field um, playing the youngest daughter. Uh, she does a really good job. She's kind of the final girl. Yes. Uh, role of the film it's sort of a pro it's definitely a proto slasher um and of course one of my favorites is julie harris as oh, the yeah. new wife because i just I, i'm a huge knots landing fan yeah, i was gonna say lily may <laughs> so i just love julie harris and seeing her in this role where you know she's very strong in this movie and i liked it because there's a scene where you know they're they're having dinner and most of the daughters, you know, they, they don't care much for her at all. She's, you know, obviously the stepmother they don't like. And they bring up her former husband, who she was also accused of murdering. And she gets, she has this little, like, dialogue, uh, or actually monologue almost, where she just kind of goes over the history of that and how, um, you know, the people basically drove her crazy with all the accusations. And... Um, she says that um, eventually she just woke up screaming in an asylum and then like she gets very sinister and says something about how if anybody ever accuses her of something like that again, the next time she won't be the one that wakes up screaming. 
And basically, mm-hmm. I took that as telling the daughters not to mess with her. <laughs> because she's not afraid of any of them. But, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, she's amazing in the film. But actually, all the uh, actors and, uh, and actresses in the film, they're all just phenomenal. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it's just... And the... Um, the, and I'm not going to spoil who the killer is, but the reveal scene where it's revealed to the audience and to one of the characters who the murderer is, I think is so well done. It is. And the reaction of the person playing the murderer is, is just, is wonderful. I just, I loved the, the scenes with the murderer, um, uh, admitting what they've done and why they've done it. So um, this, uh, yeah. this, this was made by John Llewellyn Moxie. I just want to throw this in because you brought up the ending. And um, I always call this movie, uh, the ending of this movie, I call it the Moxie moment in quotes because he used this ending in two other, three other TV movies, or maybe two others. No Place to Hide, which is a 1981 TV movie, which was in my top five, um, didn't make my top three. And something called A Taste of Evil, which was with Barbara Stanwyck. And they all actually have the same ending. Um, and he directed all of those movies. Oh, I mean, I haven't seen um, Taste of Evil. So uh, it's it's I need good. To check that one out. It's really good. Um, did you see No Place to Hide? Yes, I have seen No Place to Hide. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, I did too. It's one of my favorites. But go ahead. I didn't mean to cut. I just. Oh no, no, it's fine. Um, I particularly in this film love uh, Jill Hayworth as the very bitchy daughter, <laughs> Joanna. Yes. Because uh, she has one of the best lines in the film when. Um, the older sister, Alex, is trying to say, you know, well, he's still our father, even though we have our differences. And Joanna says, you know, I swore I wouldn't come back to this house even to see the pleasure of his coffin being closed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love her in this film. Um, Actually, like I said, I I can't praise it enough. I mean, I love all the characters in in the movie. And there's even like a a stalking cat and mouse slasher style scene with Sally Field and the killer where she's like trying to run through the woods to the neighbor's house and the killer with a pitchfork is stalking her through the woods, which is actually a really, really suspenseful scene Um, because there's one of those moments where she's hiding and the killer's feet are right there near where she's hiding. And the killer like has the pitchfork kind of slammed into the ground really close to her. I was thinking that is definitely right out of any 80s slasher. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I have a sound clip here. Uh, so Jessica Walter is like one of my favorite actresses. And um, this is just a scene from her. I get, I'm, I'm not sure how inebriated she is at this point. I can't remember. But here we go. She knew he was carrying on with that woman. Why? Why did he do it? Did he think she was going to give him the son's mother couldn't? That murderous oh Chris sweet girl you didn't know what was going on in this house you were just a child I remember he'd leave mother crying in her room while he drove across town to see her Elizabeth Hall Elizabeth Hall Morgan Mother would have left a note. Not for him, for us. She loved us. She loved us. I haven't been 
blood since the day she died. Of a broken heart. Didn't she, didn't she die of a broken heart? Didn't she die of a broken heart? Yes, Freddie. Yes, I guess she did. Okay, I love that scene. Yeah. I think it's pivotal, too, because I know Nate did this on the Hysteria Continues podcast, this movie, and I think you asked everybody why um, all the female characters had boys' names. Yes. And they it kind of address it here when she talks about, did she think, did he think that she would give him the son he always wanted? Because it's interesting because they all have, I mean, they do have female names, but the nicknames that yes. they're given, like Christine is called Chris, uh, right. Frederica is called Freddie. Alexandra's Alex and you know, Joanne. Joanne is called Joe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I always thought that was a very interesting scene. And I, I'm glad you played that clip because that pretty much answers that question. Yeah, it's just, it's really like um, it's it's there. I don't know what it's getting late. I'm forgetting the word I want to use. It's very subtle. That's the word I want to use. Yes. It's, yes. it's yes. subtle, but it's such an important part of like because the daughters have a really mixed feelings about their dad, you know, and um, and I think that this kind of explains a lot without saying much at all, you know, because you've got the girls' names, which are the nicknames of boys' names, and then you've got this scene where you you realize that he really wanted these a son all along, and so you kind of see the tension that probably happened in their childhood between the mm -hmm. father and them, you know, so it's just really well played, I think. I agree 100%. Actually, I agree so much that one of my old films, I ripped this movie off. What's it called? The oh. Gathering. I ripped it off very badly. I mean, it's a, a family <laughs> gathering and a killer with a pitchfork. And, I mean, Sounds good. The, the killer reveal in my film is a direct ripoff of the killer reveal in this one because I just liked it that much. <laughs> well, you know what? You go with... Uh... You go with the. Oh, I forgot. What I was going to say it's getting late. I'm sorry. You go with your heart. Go with your heart. Yes, exactly. exactly. Follow your heart. <laughs> the. Uh, well, I hadn't watched this film in ages. I watched it about a week ago, and one of the things I really liked was, um, it seemed to me like everyone's life was sort of up in the air. It didn't seem like, you know, I had no idea who. Well. Occasionally you have a bit of an idea of who might die and who might not, but I, I really had completely forgotten who would make it to the end and who the killer was. And um, there's kind of a lovely, um, uh, any, anyone can die in it, you know, yes. at least, which I, which I really liked. So That's a good point you bring up because 70s uh, film in particular, or in general, I mean like theatrical or small screen, especially in disaster movies, I think what made those kind of movies so good in, during that era as compared to when they tried to redo them later, and with TV movies probably later as well, is that you had no idea who was going to come out of Earthquake alive. And, and yeah. in fact, they do kill one of the stars, right? So, um, and it blows your mind at the end of the movie. You're like, wow, did they just do that? And then, like, when you're watching modern, like, Twister, you know Bill Paxton and whoever yeah. is not going to die. And it loses something there, that sense of tension. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I think in 70s movies, it was pretty much up in the air in general. And yeah. they liked that aspect of it, like, anybody could go at any minute. And that added to the suspense mm -hmm. of it, you know? Yeah. I agree. Yes, yes. post Night of Living Dead, sort of. Uh, yes. Uh, kind of. Who who knows who's going to live? And I I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed that. I I. I it's well, a fantastic keep, film. Keeps you on your toes. Yeah, it's a really good movie. It's really moody, and um, mm -hmm. it's just I don't know. It's really claustrophobic, 
there's not a yeah. lot that goes on outdoors, but even but even when they get outdoors, you still feel like they're sort of stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. I like yes. that feeling. So, and I'm not sure we said what date it aired. November twenty eighth, nineteen seventy two, and it was an ABC movie of the week. Um, and uh, it was oh, the only piece of trivia I can really dig up on it was that this movie um, used the exact same house that was featured in Crowhaven Farm. Oh wow! I didn't know that. And I love Craven Farm. I don't. I just didn't recognize the house. That's it. If anybody want to add anything, no, no, no. I think I'm good. See it. If you haven't seen it, see it. Definitely. Maybe save it for Christmas or Halloween. Absolutely. Oh, such a good Halloween movie. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay, Dan. All right. Uh, My 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 number one um, stars one of my uh, my my favorite. People, I don't know why I like him so much, Mr. Doug McClure, oh, who I who I who I just think is fantastic. I the the um, the the one Western TV show that I've ever really gotten into in my life was The Virginian, which he is one of the stars of. He's also the star of the show called Search, which I adore. Mm-hmm. And this is from January fourteenth, nineteen seventy-five. Another ABC movie of the week, but this one directed by Sutton Rowley. Yes, written by William Reed Woodfield, Satan's Triangle. Starring Kim Novak, Doug McClure, uh, Jim Davis, oh. Fernando Ray, I believe. I can't remember. After Jim El- Davis, Alejandro Ray. Alejandro you didn't, Ray, you didn't have sorry. to say anything after Jim yeah. Davis. <laughs> and I, I don't, I, I don't want to say too much about this because it really is a wonderful, like, um, Twilight Zone esque yeah. kind of thing. I have a clip. Um, I don't know oh, if, I it, it. if it'll reveal too much, but here we go. Let's hear. Are you drinking? You'll need it. It took them nearly an hour with Father Martin's help. They finally managed to get it secured below the deck. Started below the deck? Yes, there's a, a refrigerated room uh, right by the storage compartment. Anyway, by the time that they were through, the rain had stopped as suddenly as it had started. And the wind had reached hurricane proportions. When Strickland and Father Martin came back, Hal was with them. Okay. That's the All beginning right. of the story, I guess. The the it's it's basically um Coast Guard is called out to the um Bermuda Triangle, to Satan's Triangle, the Devil's Triangle, um, to uh rescue a uh looks what looks like a deserted ship. Um, and in in the in the, uh, in the helicopter, it's Lieutenant Haig, played by Doug McClure, and a gentleman named Pangolini. And I I kept thinking he was he, he was calling him Bagolini. And my wife has a has like a purse that's a Bagolini. And I thought, oh, it's a bag, it's a Bagolini. Um, and basically, what happens is they they go to this ship in the in the middle of no, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Lieutenant Haig, Doug McClure is lowered onto the ship uh, to try to find out what's going on. Um, there's there are some shenanigans involving the helicopter, and so the helicopter has to leave Doug McClure on the boat. Kim Novak uh, playing Eva is um, it seems to be the only survivor on the boat, and she tells this story about Jim Davis being this wealthy man who owns the boat and he wants to catch a big fish, and he's gone out to this this area where maybe they shouldn't have gone, and they see a priest stranded out on the water. And they bring the priest on board. Uh, things don't go well, <laughs> and 
Um, there, are, I don't want to say too much because I knew nothing about it except it was a Bermuda Triangle film when I went into it. Yeah. So I, I just want to say, if you, it, I mean, it's creepy, it's strange, it's it's, and it has several like really wonderfully scary moments in it, and um, the fate of Jim Davis is like a a bit of a mind bender. Yes, that's and, what I remember and, most actually. That and the ending, which I will yes. not go into. Yes, and and so it's just it's just it's a great movie. I love one of the things I love about the seventies is how open everyone was to UFOs and 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 yeah. Bigfoot and Bermuda Triangle. I've been in the Bermuda Triangle myself. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. I was. I we were on a boat. We were in Bermuda, and we were coasting along, and the boat stopped, and the person who was running the the tour said, um, kind of like pointed at a point and said, right there. Uh, is where we entered the Bermuda Triangle. So we were like ten feet in. We didn't stay. We we went right out. Oh. But we like went right into it. But um, and I mean, I I was, it's 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 if I was very young when this movie came. I mean, very young. Um, but but just people were nuts for the Bermuda Triangle. There were books. There were movies. Yes. Um, there was a there was a board game that has the tagline "Sinister Mystery Cloud Swallow Ships." which is an awesome tagline for a board game. Um, one of my favorite TV shows, Gemini Man, was canceled and replaced by a show called Fantastic Journey with Jared Martin, oh. which was which was set in the oh. Bermuda Triangle. So you could stop right there. So so it's just it's 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 a, it's it's so well done and it's out in the middle of nowhere on this boat and when night falls things get scary and Kim Novak is beautiful yes. and Jim Davis is ornery and Doug <laughs> McClure is um I'm Doug McClure. Uh, he's just he's just He's, he's good in it. He's good in it. He's he's really good in it because he plays the character. He sort of plays in other things where he's slightly um, gregarious and po possibly slightly smarter than some of like a Trampus character in the Virginian. Right. But he's also kind of yeah the fun loving thing that gets more serious as it goes. And I just um, I j I just think it's a wonderful, creepy, TV movie horror film. Yes. Make it watch it this Halloween. Yeah, you know I've only seen this movie once. Um... As an adult, I don't know how it passed me by as a kid, but um, it's freaky. And it, it kind of, I came into it thinking maybe it had been too hyped up because it was like a bona fide classic. And uh, my friend Lance from Kinder Trauma, this is like one of his all-time favorites, and he's written in depth about it at a couple different venues. And um, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, when you hear about a movie for so long, you see it and it's never as good as it was built up to be in your yeah. head from all the hype. So I thought... It was going to be good, but not like as good as it ended up being. And I mean, it's hard to classify this movie. Like it's a horror movie, right? But just it's mm -hmm. it's like what you said. It's so weird, and it's not like a lot happens per se. Although there's some, no. it can be a little brutal. No, but, no. But it just the buildup is so good. Yeah, te te technically, I mean, everything really ninety percent of it happens in the flashback. So Doug McClure himself is just kind of sitting there drinking and listening to Kim Novak right. tell the story. That's his kind of main thing. But then he gets he gets into it near the end. But that's all I'm gonna say. I said I've said too much. I've said too much. Nate, have you seen it? Yes. And I really enjoyed it. Um and to be honest, I can't say a whole lot about it because uh my favorite part's the ending. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, I know, it's hard, right? It's fantastic. The ending is fantastic. It sticks with you. Mm -hmm. 
you know, yeah. and uh, I don't know. I, don't, I, mean, I know there's so much I want to say, but I realize even if I said what I was going to say, it would sort of give it away. Maybe maybe one day we can talk about it in a double feature, and when we do that, we will people will spoil, know spoil profusely. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's definitely um, one of the movies that I don't know. I would I, if you haven't seen it, put it out towards the top of your list. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so we had two classics there that are legitimately scary. Um, now we're going to go to my favorite movie of all time um which is probably not legitimately scary to anybody except me uh but i'm going to just play the clip before i go into what movie it is because i i think the clip will give you an idea of what we're going into here we go Okay, so I probably could have cut that off like 30 seconds ago, but I love <laughs> that song so much. So that's Parker Stevenson in his singing debut in a ABC movie called This House Possessed that came out in um, 1981 on February 6th. Uh, it's a haunted house movie um, about a pop singer named Gary Strailhorn played by Parker Stevenson, who uh, is performing that song, and he has like some kind of weird attack on stage, and he ends up in the hospital. And he meets this nurse named Sheila, played by, oh my God, this is what happens when you don't write stuff down, Lisa Eilbacher, uh, who is also on The Hardy Boys with Parker Stevenson. And um, she and he uh, kind of, uh, well, he needs a nurse. He was He's going to take a sabbatical or whatever, and so he hires her to be his live-in nurse and they go out to no, no place that they'd ever heard of before. They just start driving and they end up in um, this little idyllic town and they find this really incredible house that's got all these uh, state-of-the-art electronic devices including security cameras all over the house that record everything and um, they decide to rent it and while they're there the uh, Lisa Eilbacher's character Sheila starts um, hearing voices and things start happening in the house and as you can see through, there's actually like house cam so like from the house's point of view you can see it's watching her at all times and when she goes into town there's a bag lady um, played by I forgot her name again um, she's in Suspiria she runs the dancing academy and um, she's calling Sheila by the name of Elizabeth and that's the beginning of the mystery of Sheila and the house and um, 
it's just, I saw it when it first aired. I saw it because Parker Stevenson was in it. He's like my ultimate everything. Um, Parker Stevenson was my very first crush. And I guess I was about 10 when this movie aired, maybe 9. And I loved it. It's got a lot of um, really interesting things happening in it. First of all, the house is gorgeous. It was shot right outside San Diego um, in a place called uh, Rancho Santa Fe. It was designed by a guy named Fred Briggs. It's a real house. It's super ultra-modern. Like, it's ridiculous uh, how it looks. Uh, it's a perfect location. Um, it's surprisingly brutal. Um, there's some really interesting murders in there. A woman gets boiled in the swimming pool. A, a woman explodes inside her car. Uh, another, it's a lot of women having stuff happen to them. Another woman um, had, takes a blood shower, which is probably the most famous scene in the movie. And uh, it's also got this really nice romance story with Parker Stevenson and Lisa Eilbacher. Um, this, that's one of the parts I love. And it's got that fantastic Sensitive You're Not music in it. Um, his pop music is really fun. Um, and uh, just through the years, I guess when I saw it, I loved it, of course. But TBS, and we, I guess you're going to hear TBS a lot. We've already mentioned it like three times. Um, TBS used to play it every Halloween. And I would, once a year, I was guaranteed to see this movie. And um, and then at some point they stopped airing it. And like an idiot, I never bothered to tape it. So through the years, I picked up bootlegs of it. And the very first bootleg I got of it, I guess I was in my mid to late 20s. And it was almost unwatchable. And you know what? I didn't care. I didn't care. As long as I could see some of it, it was enough. And then... Could you hear it okay? Yeah, I could hear it fine. And you could you could see it. It was just super grainy. And then it aired on Turner South, and somebody taped it, and I got a bootleg of it. But it was such a um, digitized looking copy. You know, it was like a really bad recording. And um, but it was again the only access I had to the movie. I now find it's never been released on DVD or video or anything. I mean, it's super hard to find. I finally got a semi-decent copy of it. Um, for my first anniversary to my husband, he bought me the screenplay, uh, hey. which was called American Gothic. And um, he and I uh, met Parker Stevenson in, I guess, 2013. And um, he signed it for me. And he gave me his business card, by the way. So we may be hearing from Parker oh, nice. Stevenson at some point if I ever get the guts to get in touch <laughs> awesome. with him. He's really nice. Uh, and you couldn't believe I had... The, actually, I had Amanda Weiss sign it as well, you know, from Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, mm. She's in the opening scene. And uh, I met her at another oh, convention. Yeah. And I had her sign the script. And she could not believe that I had that script and that I loved that movie. And she was so excited to talk about it. And she mm. said the biggest memory she had from the movie, besides the fact that Parker Stevenson was absolutely dreamy, was that, <laughs> she, you know, Aaron Spelling produced it. And I guess uh, Candy Spelling, his wife, took her shopping for nylons because, you know, women always had to wear nylons when they wore shorts on TV back mm -hmm. then. And they went nylon shopping together. And she said she had a blast hanging out with Candy Spelling. Wow. So um, there's not much to say about this movie. It's actually directed by William Wired and was written by David Levitson, who also wrote and directed uh, Fantasies, which was my third mm -hmm. choice. Um, and they did another movie with Anthony Gary from General Hospital and Shelley Hack that I would love to talk about one day called Kicks. And um, their movies are really glossy. They're probably superficial. Like there's not, I don't think there's necessarily, although it seems like fantasies had depth in the inspiration. I don't know in the execution, you really catch all that. But um, they're really good glossy movies that probably seem throwaway to a lot of people. But for whatever reasons, these movies, I'm really drawn 
to the these these films that David Levinson and William Wired made. They're comfortable. Uh, they're wonderful. I don't think that they're necessarily predictable. You know, I just think that they're they're really uh, highly they're hyper stylized. Um, and maybe that turns people off. I don't know. This house possesses actually, and if we're going to just get a little serious, the, and I think my husband said something to Parker Stevenson about it too. But after my parents died uh, in 2005, uh, this movie became like a big staple for me because it was a great thing to escape to. And um, we watched it. I can't even tell you how many times my husband sat with me on the couch and watched it. And um, so it's like an important film to me too. So it, it kind of, it's like you might be able to diss it on a technical level or maybe it's not a traditional great film like for to be part of the canon. But um, it's a movie that, that really means a lot to me. And that's why I chose it to be my number one movie. And I just watched it for the first time about a, uh, two weeks ago. I, I, I had a great time. I really, I really enjoyed it. It's fun. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sensitive, you're not. Wasn't my favorite song. <laughs> oh, is it play me uh, like I, a song? I just, I, I, yeah, I, I, it was just like sensitive, you're not. It just seems slightly awkward. If that's um, why I love it. Rock chorus. I guess that's that's right. I guess he pulls that off. But they, um, but any, yeah, any film with like Parker Stevenson, Joan Bennett. That's it. Is the um, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, that has Parker Stevenson, Joan Bennett, and Slim Pickens. That's right. Oh, why didn't I it's, mention him? Thank you. I'm glad you're gonna, here. It's going to be a good time. And <laughs> yeah, and I, I really, you know, you know what I, uh, something I found interesting, and this, this was just sort of a, a nerdy moment where I sat up and went, "What the, um, you know, the the gal who's in the blood shower? Yes, who's like a, Tanya, a hip, a hip hot young gal i don't Who, know how old she oh wait is. i think i know what you're gonna say go ahead she's a model yeah yeah well um there, there's a moment um <laughs> where uh and uh if if i don't say what you think i'm gonna say you say it okay. after you say it. Uh, um well there's just a moment where i was sitting there and she she shows up at the house oh no this isn't and, okay uh, she shows up at the house and and parker stevenson um says how did you find me and she says, and re remembering that I'm looking at her as like she, you know, the the hot, hip, young, 1981 gal. And she says, "Oh, um, through um, uh, your 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 manager, Mr. Keen, tracer of lost singers." And I sat up and I said, "Mr. Keen, Mr. Keen was a radio show that ran from 19 like 37 to 1955. Oh. It was a um, it was a detective show, and it was created by the Hummerts." Who were one of the who were the couple who, along with the woman who created Guiding Light, oh. were more or less the people who created soap operas, mm -hmm. and oh. and and so it was like the the moment I heard this this hip happen in I said that four times already woman referencing a radio show that had been off the air for twenty six years, I thought well, that's a strange that's <laughs> a strange reference for a. A hip hop young woman to make it just <laughs> well, it, it was I got on her side a little bit right well, there. Well, but I, I mean, you're on to something because she shows up at the hospital right to see Gary, yes. and she basically like bulldozes over everybody except Sheila, and she's like, I slept all the way over from Sausalito, you know what I mean? And I'm like, slap. <laughs> right? And yeah, it's yeah, funny, yeah. and she's got that horrible <laughs> fur thing around her neck. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I love her. It's like, yeah, I'd I'd love to know, like, yeah, just these little these little moments in her character that were just like, huh, that's interesting. You know, that's, that's interesting that you say that because David Levinson, who wrote this, was one of the main producers on Heart to Heart, which you know was based off The Thin Man. 
Oh yeah. Sure. So oh, yeah. so he I think he might have an eye for that kind of classic era mm -hmm. of radio and film and everything. Yeah, but I, I think I think this is this is a great choice. This is a fun yeah. fun film. Wow, I thought for sure you were gonna talk about the schlep scene. I love that part. The schlep okay. the schlep was great. The schlep was great too. But the, uh... And she's a pill popper as well. She's got a lot going on in that character. She shows up for like two scenes and she's everything for like those two yeah, scenes. She, she, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't see yeah. anything else but her. Um Nate, have you seen this? Yes, I have, but unfortunately it's been uh, it's been years ago, and the only thing I remember is the house itself. Yeah, it's an impressive house. Yeah, fantastic yes. house. So there's somebody online, and maybe they'll hear this. I don't know who they are. They left a comment on my blog without any contact information, and I've seen them on other blog posts, and I don't know how to get in touch with them, but they somehow got into that house and filmed it from the inside just what? a few years ago. Like they were, I guess they're as obsessed. So it's interesting. So... If you go on IMDb, there are actually quite a few people that are like myself that saw this when it first came out and had an, it left an impression. And it's a it's probably easier to find now, but it was really hard to find five years ago. And um, a lot of people were talking about it. And this person would just show up, and I guess he was also equally as obsessed as I am with it. And he went, he found the house, and he apparently met the owners, and he, and he somehow got himself in the house, and they let him film the interiors. And he's wow. never made it available, but he tells people that he's visited it. And if he ever comes across this podcast, I would definitely, if he could get that on YouTube or something, I think wow, so many people would love to see what the house looks like yeah. now and to hear the story of the house. I mean, I'm not even sure how they found it. And it's interesting because David Levinson says he, when he wrote the movie, he meant for it to be a modern house. But Parker Stevenson said that wasn't the original script. He said it was actually an old Gothic house. And, um, oh. I have the script, and the script doesn't really indicate it either way, so I've never been able to solve that mystery. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for picking that one. I don't know that I would have ever uh, quite, <laughs> quite got to that one. I, it, it's, it's something that I probably would have, but now I got to it quicker, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's just really good, and it puts me in a good place. And fantasies is the same way. They, they're just movies I can kind of lose myself in. Yeah. And, and um. They have their moments. They're they're suspenseful. I definitely think this house possessed has some really great suspenseful moments. Yeah, but... the, the gate sequence with the car. Oh, it's so just, good. It's just very surprising. Yeah. Well, that blood shower was a big deal when that I was, was a, a kid because my my the kid that lived down the street from me, we watched it on the same night and we I went over to his house the next day and we were just that's all we could talk about and I just <laughs> like when I would take showers I would think about it, and I would be like, what does that happen right now? It'd be so scary. So yeah. So um, there you go. Those are our top yeah. three. Yay! Um, my top choice might be polarizing, but let us know. <laughs> you can actually get in touch with us. So um, so here's what's going on. Uh, we don't have a Facebook or Twitter set up yet. I was kind of waiting till I actually got these podcasts live on iTunes or wherever we're going to put them. But I have uh, been working on a website, so you can find us at TV Mayhem Podcast dot wordpress.com um, forward slash uh, and uh, it's very bare bones right now but we're going to be uploading podcasts we do I do have a couple things on there uh, so if you don't get the email address this time around and you find the podcast page you will find a contact us page you will also find an about us page which we are currently still building where we have little bios um, and I also started a recommended reading list so um, mm. 
I've put two books up there. One is a book about Dan Curtis, and another is the Alvin Merrill uh, encyclopedias of TV movies. And uh, we'll just keep adding to those. I think I might... Uh, tonight, I was pretty lax about it, but what I think I'd like to do is if we are doing a double feature or talking about whatever on another show, and we end up mentioning another movie just because it reminds us of a movie that we're talking about and we feel like we want to recommend it, I think I want to make a recommend page where we can add movies that we haven't gone in depth in, but we would like people to yeah. at least note, take note of. Um, we'd also like to hear uh, your thoughts on this podcast. Um, and the email address is tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. And um, just feel free to let us know what your favorite TV movie is, uh, what you'd like to see, or I guess see, hear us talk about, um, if you agree or disagree with our picks on anything, if you have, fa we love trivia. Um, if you know something about one of these movies we mentioned that you think is important to bring up, uh, we can do that. If we get any feedback, we can read it on the air. Uh, so anyway, because, uh, one of the main points of this, so something, I'll be real quick and then we'll go after this. Something I'll confess a little bit about the horror movie world. I love horror movies. I wrote a lot about horror movies. I've written for magazines. I've been published in books. I've just uh, sent off a couple essays for some upcoming books that I'll tell you about when that, when I know those books are coming out. Um, and I've been in the horror movie world. Uh, I've worked on some films um, for a while now. But while the community can be really warm and inviting, it can also be really cold. And um, I actually stepped away from writing about horror movies because of that. Uh, it's a long story, and I won't go into it. And it's stupid and petty on my part in some ways. And it's, stupid, and it's not stupid and petty on my part. But I feel like the part that was really good about the community is what I would like to see happen with TV movies. I know that there's a lot of people who watch TV movies, but there's not a lot of places to... Uh, hear about them, discuss them, and to share, you know, your love of them. And so I know my blog has been a, a really popular place for that, and my Facebook page that goes with my blog. So my blog is made for TV Mayhem, if anybody missed that at the beginning, and you're just stumbling on this. Um, and uh, I just want to make it more as interactive as possible, because as much as I love these movies, it's no fun when you're watching stuff by yourself, you know, and it's just you in this box, sort of. You know, you can enjoy it, but it's it's really fun when you can discuss it. And so I want to encourage people to be really um, vocal about their love of it and to, to share it. And that will read every piece of email or whatever that is sent and it won't fall on deaf ears. Um, and I think it's also a good place for us. Now, I don't think that like Warner Archives is going to listen to this podcast and be like, we need to release this house possessed. But I think that it's important <laughs> to know that the... The studios maybe should be aware that we would like to see some of these movies come out. And so it's nice to have a presence online for that. And so that's the other goal of this, I think. Excellent. Do you guys have goals? Uh, I, 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 I really just wanted to tell everyone about Escape. That was <laughs> oh, you're my, done. Uh, that, woo! <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I agree with what, what, uh, what you've said. Yeah, I'd love to see some more of these actually get official releases because um, – uh, some of the copies I've been watching have been pretty gamey. Yes, that's the other thing. It, I would really like, like if somebody could take Escape and maybe clean it up a little mm -hmm. and put it on a DVD, you don't even know how grateful we would be. You know what I mean? And I think places like 
uh, Warner Archives have such a great idea. Like it's print on demand, right? So it's not like yes. they have to make so many copies and hope they sell them. They just make them when they make a sale. And yes. they have, I mean, I think their DVDs can be of varying quality. Like Bad Ronald, I think, could look better. But mm. um, but it's available. And, and it looks good. And it looks better than any bootleg I ever picked up off eBay, right? So, um, I you know... Right. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I do also love to, to – I'd love to just uh, sort of any memories, yeah, folks have of watching these when they originally aired. Uh, I'd love to I'd love to hear it. I love those stories. Yeah, I do I too. Love, I do too. Yeah. And any movie – so we're talking a lot about horror tonight, but I mean I, I'm oh, no. really into a lot of different things. I love soap operas. Feel free to uh, <laughs> talk to me about soap operas. I'm watching Young and the Restless in General Hospital right now. I love um, – old classic television from the 70s and 80s 60s as well i don't go too far back after that or before that although i do like a lot of stuff from then too i just haven't watched it as much like i forgot how much i loved the abbott and costello show oh yeah it's great yeah, yeah. it's i read um it's, it's pretty hilarious when they did the summer of me tv blogathon which uh, you and i were a part of for the classic tv blog association mm -hmm. um Somebody did the Abbott and Costello show. And I, you know what? It was just in the recesses of my mind. I kind of forgot I'd ever watched it. And then I was reading their uh, blog post on it. I wish I could remember who wrote it. It was so wonderful. And um, I just remembered how important and funny. I mean, I had to catch it every day. And it was just, it was just, I had to be there. And I loved it. I loved it. And I completely forgot about it. Mm -hmm. yeah it's fantastic yeah I used to I, I forget one summer when I think we we moved houses like when I was like 12 or 13 years old and the summer we moved I, I would watch it almost every night it was on like 10 at night and I would watch it and laugh and laugh and uh, it's it's a wonderful a wonderful raucous show yeah so which good I really like. so good um, so let's just real quick just uh, put out there uh, how we can all be found I have my blog made for TV mayhem dot com um, also I have a Facebook page for my blog, which is, um, I just type in made for TV mayhem. It'll come up and I have a Twitter, which I think is at made for TV mayhem. I can't remember. I should have wrote that, wrote that down, but, um, I, I'm all over the net. I'm not on Instagram or Tumblr. I do have a Tumblr page, but I can't remember what it's called. It has nothing to do with TV, but, um, uh, so that's where you can find me. I have a new, I, I don't know when this will get posted, but the latest review I wrote was for an Andy Griffith movie called Savages. Um, which is so good, and uh, I'm hoping to get something up in the next couple weeks, but that's the newest thing I have, if you're interested in reading about that. Um, Dan, where can we find you? Um, well, my blog is Some Polish American Guy Reviews Things. I believe it's <laughs> Polish, PolishAmericanGuyReviews.blogspot.com, or you can um, just Google Some Polish American Guy Reviews Things, and it'll come up. Uh, and right now, like I mentioned earlier, I'm reviewing the Ge uh, Gemini Man, the Ben Murphy series. I, I'm about three or four episodes from the end. Uh, there are only 12 episodes, but um, it's it's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm on Twitter, Danny Slacks One, and I've just recently joined the land of Facebook. And I forget what I'm under there. Daniel <laughs> R. Budnick, possibly B-U-D-N-I-K. I've uh, I've uh, but. Uh, Go go to the Twitter and you you can get to where you need to get to. Um, I think. But let me know. Did you review Ben Murphy's Bell Bottoms? I will be reviewing that in a separate <laughs> review at the end of the series. You need to because it's its own character. They're fantastic. Yes, they are. He he's almost like 
he doesn't exist inside them. They're so big. <laughs> it's like, you know, he's really beautiful, but not in those pants. There's a Ben Murphy in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. Ahoy. Let's, let's find him. Um, Nate, where can we find you? Um, I'm very elusive. Um, <laughs> but you have a podcast. The Hysteria Continues Facebook page. That's about it. I don't have a Twitter or an Instagram or a Tumblr or a blog or but if you haven't checked out Hysteria Continues, it's on iTunes. They have over 100 episodes now. Um, they're fantastic. Uh, and uh, it's it's my – there's a lot of podcasts I've been listening to, um, partly because I'm trying to get uh, – whoa. I'm trying to get a hold on podcasting, but also because I, it turns out there's a lot of wonderful podcasts. But Hysteria Continues remains my favorite um, of all the shows and that's saying something because there's a really kick-ass Young and the Restless chat that this girl Allie does. And um, she's not quite neck and neck with you guys, but I'm saying the competition's pretty stiff. But um, it's really good. And if you haven't heard of it, go on iTunes and find it. Awesome. And I think, right. I think that's it. So I'm going to play yeah. our closing song. And then if you guys could just hang on for a minute. But that's the end of our podcast, and we'll see. Oh, I forgot. So... Um, so we're going to be doing one of two things next time. We haven't decided yet. We're either going to do a Wes Craven tribute, um, and if we don't do it next time, we'll we'll, we'll do it at some point. Um, or we're going to start our first double feature, which is Crawl Space. Well, I should don't be afraid of the dark is the bona fide hit, and um, Crawl Space is the movie we're going to be um, watching with it. So that'll be next time. I'm not quite sure when that's going to happen. We'll have a more set schedule when we get farther rolling, but first I have to figure out how to put this on iTunes. So, um, okay. So wish me luck and thank you guys for joining me. And, um, yeah, of course we'll see everybody next time. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Saturday night movie.